Uh, our format is that uh, Ken Bell, who's Bellingham Court Commissioner, and Joe Tian from KGMI Radio will alternate as the moderators. So they'll take turns asking questions. Each set of pair of candidates, in other words, the Senate position one, or the Senate, Senate will be asked two questions, then we'll rotate to position one, and then to position two, two questions each. The questions will be, um, the, uh, the candidates will have two minutes to answer the question. That'll be followed by a one-minute response from their opponent, followed by a 30-second rebuttal. Our, our timer, wherever Dave is, is right down in front. Dave Uncle, thank you. Uh, appreciate you being here. Um, so the candidates tonight we have with us, um, I guess I don't see Sharon here yet, right? Okay, um, I'm going to start out then, uh, Senator Simon Stefsik. Um, <laughs> 42nd District Senate. I'm going to hold for a second here. Representative Sharon Shoemate for the 42nd candidate, uh, candidate. And then from the... Uh, 42nd District, uh, position one, uh, Alicia Rule is current representative. She's being challenged by Tasha Dykstra-Thompson. Um, and then 42nd uh, District two, um, candidate uh, uh, Dan Johnson. And uh, Joe Timmons. Uh, the format is that we will go rotate. It'll take about two hours. Each candidate will answer six questions tonight. And we'll rotate between the candidates asking pairs of questions. Uh, when we're all done with that, um, Julie Anderson, who is running for Secretary of State, will make a five-minute statement on her campaign and why she's running for Secretary of State. Following that, we will have the second congressional district candidates um, Representative Rick Larson and Dan Matthews. I know Dan is here. I haven't seen Rick, but I want to thank you for being here. Uh, for those out in La La Land that are listening on KGMI, we are live streaming the show tonight uh, on Facebook Live, on YouTube, as well as the Bellingham Metro News. And uh, see, I mentioned Dave Uncles is timing. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Joe and Ken. I think uh, Joe's going to lead it off. Thanks very much, Dick. We'll start with our two candidates from the 42nd District, candidates for State Senate in the 42nd District. And the first question will go to candidate Sharon Shoemake. The homeless policies currently in place don't seem to be enough to address the problems of drug use, violence, and theft. What changes would you make to address this? Sharon? Thank you. So the homeless crisis is a real crisis and it makes people feel unsafe as well as it's not kind to those that are experiencing this. So we need to fill in the pieces of our mental health care system. That means looking for secure detox beds, it means looking for secure mental health beds, building those beds and staffing them appropriately, making sure that people have options to escape homelessness. It also means looking for long-term recovery beds. There are some folks, whether for, often for no fault of their own, that are gonna have a hard time living on their own and might need more supports. We need to make sure that we're providing those supports. 
Another thing is we need to break, we need to fix our broken housing market. It's really easy to become homeless when rent is $1,800 a month versus when it used to be $300 a month. This is intolerable. Before the pandemic, we were at functional zero for children and families experiencing homelessness. That is amazing. We have definitely gone backwards as a result of that, but I do believe this is something that we can fix. Finally, we do have to look at our drug laws. The Supreme Court dropped a bomb on the legislature when they legalized all drugs with the Blake decision. We cobbled together a solution that we could get to pass it wasn't the best solution. I will agree with that. It was what could get passed and no solution. Voting no on that would have been a vote to keep all drugs legal, which is not acceptable. So we have to figure out how to deal with drugs in a way that is more sustainable, make sure people have the recovery resources they need, and make sure that dangerous drugs are not legal in Washington state and that the people who sell those drugs are punished appropriately. Well, folks, this is uh, exactly why it's important to look at people's voting records and not just listen to, to rhetoric. In fact, uh, the, the interesting thing is the answer that Representative Shoemake just gave you is actually different from one that she gave to you less than 24 hours ago at the League of Women Voters Forum. Representative Shoemake does not even believe that fentanyl, one of the most dangerous drugs in, on, on the streets right now, should be treated as a felony. If we were allowed to treat uh, hard drugs as a felony, that would actually allow our law enforcement officers to provide pressure and use leverage to get people the help that they need. It wouldn't have to stay on their record. It wouldn't have to stigmatize people from future employment options. But what it would do is allow us to actually address the problem. Representative Shoemake, uh, again, supports the decriminalization of hard drugs. That's a fundamental problem. And you're probably going to hear on the radio that I'm an extremist. The most extreme position to take is the one that my opponent has taken. And apparently until just now, uh, I'm glad that you've changed your mind. I hope the ride along helped change that. Uh, but again, fundamentally, we have to make sure that those who commit crimes are punished for those crimes. And even Representative Alicia Rule had a bill this session to try to make fentanyl illegal. Representative Shoemake was opposed to that bill. That's a huge problem. Sharon, you have 30 seconds for a rebuttal. Did you hear any answers from Simon? Because I didn't. All I heard was attacks. This is all he has because he doesn't have good ideas. I do not support making fentanyl a felony. I do support making it illegal. Simon said I want to legalize all drugs and that I want to legalize fentanyl. There's a big difference between a felony and having real consequences for drug use, for being a danger to yourself or others. When you make something a felony, we are seeing the impacts of our failed drug war. It costs us billions. It doesn't protect people. It doesn't get people into treatment. I want to make sure we get people into treatment and have real consequences for things that are a danger to yourself or others. All right. Move on to our second question, still for our Senate candidates. This uh, to Simon Sepsik. The state of Washington is sitting on a multi-billion dollar surplus, but tax increases have been proposed. Are these necessary? Nope. The fact of the matter is that 22 new taxes have been passed since 2018. Representative Shoemake says she wants to make an economy that works for all, but my guess is the vast majority of people in this room don't feel like that right now. When Representative Shoemake supported the policies that will make your gas prices increase by potentially up to a dollar starting in January, that's not an economy that works for all. That's not an effective solution. The fact of the matter is that we had a 
estimated $16 billion budget surplus, and not a single penny of that budget surplus was spent on any type of meaningful tax relief. Washington State was one of the only states in the entire country to not give the people some of their money back in any type of immediate tax relief. And that's because I do think there is a disconnect. And it's a disconnect that is illustrative of the difference between my opponent and myself. I do not believe that a group of politicians and bureaucrats in a far distant capital know how to spend your money and run your lives better than you do. I think that you should be empowered with the opportunity to spend your money as you would like. But the majority party is going to keep taxing you away and not giving you your money back. That has to stop. That's why I'm the only candidate in this race that's been endorsed by small businesses that you trust, like the Association of Washington Business. Uh, that's why I've been endorsed by the National Federation of Independent Businesses, because the fact of the matter is that continuing to overregulate, overstudy, and overtax is not going to bring people into prosperity. You are here to hear answers tonight. I agree with Representative Shoemake. She has had four years to make these issues get better, and it's not just that she hasn't done anything. It's that she's actively made these issues worse with more taxes. Have you seen the homelessness problem get better or get worse in the past four years? The fact of the matter is that the answers that you've seen out of the majority party have not made your life more safe. They have not made your day-to-day -day living more affordable. They have not made your government more accountable. They've made, on every single one of those metrics, worse and worse and worse. Representative Shoemake last night accused me of following political strategists in Texas for my campaign. I don't have to follow them because I have all of you to listen to, and you've told me how bad the status quo is here in Whatcom County. Sharon, you have a minute to respond. Simon Subsett continues to advocate for the people that pay him. Big Pharma, Big Tobacco, the people that pay his bills in the legislature. I think that's wrong. I want to make sure that the taxes you pay are lower. I want to lower taxes on working people, and I want to do that by not cutting schools, not cutting social services, not making our roads and bridges likely to fail, because I believe the very wealthy need to pay their fair share. Four years ago, in this forum, I said I do not support an income tax. I did say that I support a capital gains tax because I believe in taxes that very wealthy people pay to make sure that our economy has fantastic schools, fantastic social services, and roads and bridges that work. Our capital gains tax, you don't even start to pay it until you make more than a quarter of a million dollars selling stocks. Retirement accounts are exempt, small businesses are exempt, but a quarter of a million dollars in a year selling stocks. If you want someone that's going to own the libs, vote for Simon Sevzik. If you want someone that's going to get solutions, you're going to look elsewhere. Simon's got 30 seconds for a rebuttal. Yeah. First of all, I think it's hilarious that you're saying a capital gains tax is different from an income tax. Douglas County Superior Court judge literally just found that the tax you voted for is an income tax. The IRS has said that that tax you voted for is an income tax. And your only response every time I've brought this up has been getting to the weeds about definitions. Folks, I'm a legislator. My job is to get into the weeds about definitions. You're an economist, and you're saying that you can you even defend right now how an income tax is different from a capital gains income tax? Sure. I, I would love it if you could explain it right now. You haven't so far. Go ahead. Explain how it's different. Okay. Simon is incredibly condescending up here. He does not understand the basic economics, and he doesn't understand that we did 
taxes on working people. We increase the number of small businesses that okay. don't have to pay okay. the tax $185,000. Okay, we're, we're going to move on to our next question now. Answer to the question. I, I mean, again, you, you have a PhD in economics. Explain it. Well, then explain it. Explain how it's different. Explain yeah, like how a capital gains income tax like isn't an income tax. So I'd like to uh, start by welcoming everybody who took the time to come out to the uh, auditorium tonight. Welcome to Meridian High School. Thank you to the candidates for being here. Um, I'm going to address these to uh, the 42nd uh, District and um, Alicia Rule and Tasha Dykstra-Thompson. If you don't mind, do you mind if I call you by your first names? Is that acceptable? Thank you. And there's quite a tome here, so get ready. Whatcom County citizens and businesses, including the farms, have suffered untold personal and business losses, running into the millions of dollars in November 2021 and earlier years. This was due largely to state agency restrictions and river management by local governments and private parties, lack of assistance when needed. Some state and local government staff believe rivers should be left to run wild with no levees or riprap to protect riverbanks and control flood levels. This is called channel migration. Whatcom County Public Works has a draft map applying this idea to the Nooksack River. If elected, are you willing to hold oversight hearings on these issues, listen to citizens and legislate where needed to hold these agencies accountable? And I would like to start with Alicia. Thank you. Um, Ken, I appreciate the opportunity to answer the question because this is something that's on the minds of all of the people who are impacted by the flood and frankly that's most of us in Whatcom County, particularly in the East County area. I worked really hard to bring back money for relief for folks impacted and we need to work together and you know I, I guess I just have to say coming off of the, the tone of how things have started tonight, you can see the challenge we have ahead of us. If we are going to look at something like river management, we need to have Canada on board, our federal government on board, our state government on board, the Senate and the House and the county and the small cities, as well as the tribes, all working together toward a solution that functions for all of us who live here. And it's a, it's a political environment right now that's really tough. I have committed to working with all of those people in the same room to come to solutions that will work for us. But as you can see, it's a challenge. And um, I'm up for the work. I have uh, really felt proud of my bipartisan record. I have the most bipartisan record in the legislature. And I'm ready to go back and do some more of that. Thank you. And uh, just because I was already messed this up, this was supposed to go to Tasha first and then Alicia. So we're going to give Tasha two minutes to respond as well, and then I'll catch up later with the responses. So we'll give Alicia a chance to respond to yours. Uh, well, thank you again for everybody who took the time out of this, this evening to come and uh, listen to our solutions for uh, the problems that are plaguing our district. Um, this one, of course, is very near and dear to my heart. Uh, I grew up on a floodplain. Our farm was on the Noon Road. It flooded um, fairly regularly. And what I found out and what I learned growing up is that uh, it was our friends and our neighbors that came to, to save us and help us and not relying on the government to do so. There's a place to never 
it is our friends and neighbors, and sometimes government regulations get in the way of our friends and neighbors being able to effectively help us. So I also am a disaster case manager. I have been working with the flood survivors primarily in are a lot of people. The money is great, except it's not here yet. Uh, I still have people waiting for buyout for their homes, and so they're living in limbo uh, between different homes, and that is what I'm referring to. Government needs to do faster, but what we have found with government in a lot of different situations is over regulations that impact our ability to move forward, and so we need to work on some of the regulations that do not support the, uh, I think what you referred to as the uh, migrating river. I think we have to have an effective river, river management and flood management. One, it helps us with what water management in the uh, uh, winter and in the summer when we need the water for our dairies and our agriculture to thrive. And, but it's going to take more than just one issue. Just an example of overregulation for the one thing that they've done so far uh, coming in in flood season is a si side channel project. Uh, my, what I've been told is it's $80,000 for permitting to get the project that costs $8,000 to complete. And so that is what I'm referring to. We need to find a more effective way because we are all paying for that. And it took uh, almost 10 months to get that project done. And that's not going to be effective if we have that kind of weather storm again hit our community. We're not going to be able to stop all flooding, but we can do a lot more to um, protect our communities. And if you would do me a favor, would all of you just hold that mic a little closer to your okay. mouth because we are trying to get to the radio audience. And okay. as you fade it away, we are not getting clear sound. Thank you. Alicia 30. Thanks for the reminder. Yes, I actually passed a law that will stay in statute forever that is something that will be disaster relief specifically for farmers. And the reason I did that is because I am well aware that our farmers are key to our community and our region. I'm also aware that our farmers and our shellfish harvesters have to work together. You know, they, they, they're connected. Our environment doesn't really care how we vote. Um, the, the shellfish and the farmers need to work together in order for us to be able to function and have both. So that'll stay in, in forever. Um, and in addition, I can, again, agree, I see my time's up. Thank you. Hey, I'm going to get this one right. This one's going to go to Alicia first. Washington State has a cap-and-trade legislation that goes into effect on January 1st, 2023 adding another 54 cents per gallon on gasoline. Do you think this will have a useful impact on climate change, or is this just another hustle for tax revenues? I believe that climate change is real and in our backyard, and we need to address it. And I voted against this legislation. The reason I did that was because our neighbors who live, and myself, who live in rural areas, we just drive a lot more than many other legislators that I work with. And, it, and sometimes that happens because that's where we can afford to live. I also voted against this legislation because our farmers have big equipment and our construction folks that are building the very housing that we know that we need. And we're just not there yet, and we can't move forward with this on the backs of the poor. So I do recognize how important this is. This is the kind of nuanced, well-thought-out policy that requires difficult conversations around a table with people from all sides bringing information to the table. I am not one to say that I know everything about everything, but I am willing to listen deeply and understand all sides of an issue before making a decision moving forward that will impact everybody in our community. Thank you. Tasha? Uh, since 2018, uh, the Washington State Legislature, which has been controlled strictly by the Democratic Party, 
has passed four, um, excuse me, three more taxes. Uh, the carbon tax that she was just referencing, the long-term care tax, and um, a property tax, capital gains tax. And so all of these are mostly negatively influencing the low to middle income people in our communities. And so we need to come up with a more effective way. I appreciate that she voted no on it, but the fact of the matter is it still passed. And that's because there is an imbalance of power in the House and the legislature. And we are just trying to have a more balanced approach, which means both sides of the table need to be at the table in a balanced, uh, 50, 50, closer to 50-50 versus having a huge um, leverage of nine Republicans are down nine seats in the House. And so that means that a lot of people can vote no, but the uh, bills that are not are negatively impacting our communities are still being passed. I voted no for all three of those tax increases, and I did that because I know I, our community well. I have grown up here. I have five generations of my family here. And when I think about how these policies will impact our community, it's your faces that come to mind and your stories that I've heard over my time as a social worker and a therapist and a neighbor and a friend in your community. And I'll continue to vote in the best interest of you, my community, every time. Thank you. Thank you. Joe? All right, we move now to position two, our state uh, representative candidates in the 42nd district. And we'll start uh, with Joe Timmons. Joe, currently there is initiative I-1474 to restore police pursuit of criminal suspects. Are you in favor of restoring this law enforcement tool? Thank you very much, Joe. And can you remind me how much time we have? I apologize. Two minutes. Two minutes, thank yeah. you. Um, hello, everybody. It's very uh, nice to be here with you today. My name is Joe Timmons. As was said, I'm running for uh, House Position 2. Uh, I think these uh, forums in our community are really important. I think it's important that we uh, still talk to one another and that we uh, reach uh, uh, across party lines and, and have conversations so that uh, voters can make uh, an informed decision uh, about the people that they're electing to represent them. With that in mind, Joe, um, I, uh, I am committed to working with law enforcement in Olympia. Uh, I believe that uh, laws passed in recent years, while I really understand the intent behind the legislation in the wake of uh, the incident with George Floyd, um, have, 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 some, have some problems with them. And I, I know the legislature tried to impact or tried to fix some of those problems around the use of force bill last session. Um, and, and I look forward to getting down to Olympia and working on the pursuits bill. At the end of the day, look, everybody deserves to feel safe in our community. I'm fully committed to that. I have a two-year-old. I live in Bellingham. I want my two-year-old to be able to walk in downtown Bellingham. I want him to be able to grow up in downtown Bellingham, feel safe, and stay here if he wants. That's what we did. My wife, Heather, grew up here in Whatcom County. We're glad to be uh, setting down roots here near her family. So I'm fully committed to public safety. I'm fully committed to making sure that our community is safe. To me, that means working with law enforcement to resolve some issues around legislation in recent years. Um, and and like, like all, like all in, uh, professions, law enforcement needs to be held accountable. But I think law enforcement needs to be at the table. I think law enforcement needs to be part of these conversations, and I'm fully committed to doing that in Olympia if given the chance to serve. And I'll say, too, I'm really proud to have the endorsement of local firefighters. I'm really to, proud to have the endorsement of the Washington State Council of Firefighters. These are first responders that also respond during times of emergency. I know it's been a very difficult year, for a uh, few years, for uh, our first responders. I want to give them a shout out for the work that they do in our community, and I'm proud to have the support of local firefighters as well. But yes, to answer your question directly, Joe, fully committed to um, 
resolving some of the issues around the pursuit legislation. I recognize that there's need for change there, and I'm committed to working with law enforcement when given the chance to serve in Olympia. Dan Johnson, you have a minute to respond. Could you repeat the question, please? Yes. Currently, there is. I'm sorry, Joe. Just so he did two, and then I do one. Yeah, you have a response to this, then he'll have a rebuttal for 30 seconds. So you I have, got gotcha. you. Have a okay. Okay. So uh, the question: Currently, there is initiative I-1474 to restore p police pursuit of criminal suspects. Are you in favor of restoring this law enforcement? Yes, and I think that it is something that. Thank you. So I'm also endorsed by the Whatcom County Sheriff, Bill Elfo, and I'm endorsed by the former Bellingham Police Chief, Flo Simon, as well as I have the endorsement of WACOPS. And with that, uh, just a little bit about that model is that it's, it's just what that was, is it was a model. And it's not a one-size-fits-all for the whole state because our state is very diverse. It was a model that put it on every single municipality and county to come up with their own version of what works best for them. And knowing that is what comes from working with stakeholders and working with the people that are directly involved like law enforcement. And these are the things I know because these are the people that I've worked with for the bulk of my adult life. Thank you. Joe, you have 30 seconds. 30 seconds, yeah, thank you, Joe. Um, yeah, I'll just, I'll just reiterate, I'm, I'm glad that, that my opponent and I agree that, that this legislation needs some reform. I, I agree with that. Uh, I look forward to working on this issue. As I said, to me, everybody deserves to feel safe in our community. I'm fully committed to working on that if given the chance to serve. All right, next question for these same candidates. And we start with Dan Johnson this time. What will you do to protect the future of farming here? You have two minutes. Boy, that's such, a, that's such a broad question. What will I do to protect the future of farming? Well, uh, I think for stuff to grow, we need water. And that's something that we need to seriously uh, take a look at here in Whatcom County. Uh, not only where it comes down the river of the Nooksack that I don't believe should be allowed to meander to and fro as it pleases anywhere it wants all across our county, as has been suggested. I think that uh, making that river flow in a very uh, specific way with its bed and the riparian and protecting everything that lives within that river, but also the, the riparian and keeping in mind that there are people that live around the river and we have to take all those into consideration as, as the farmers as well as where those farmers live and where their workers live and so forth and being able to to better mitigate where that water goes. And it's not just uh, so much as a flooding issue as it's also a, uh, a drought issue like coming into the summer, the late summer months. So finding a way to have water storage in the upper areas of the river is also gonna help when we can get that irrigation when the crops are in uh, full swing and so forth. Uh, there's also some other things that we can do to help with farming uh, that go economy-based, that are, you know, making the, the business of farming itself. Washington has some of the highest taxes in the land as far as business goes, and farming is a business. And being able to help the farmers with their day-to-day -day expenses and not make it harder on them because the margins on farming products is uh, kind of small. And so we got to make sure that we're giving the, the best opportunities to be successful to our local farmers because 
they make the food we eat, and I like eating. So whatever beyond that there is, I'm open to it. So. Yeah, Joe, one more time, the question, please. It, what, will you do to am I, what will you do to protect farming here? Got it, got it. Thank you very much. Um, one minute, thank you. Uh, I will try to be brief then. Yes, uh, absolutely. As, as my opponent said, uh, uh, food is, is key. Uh, it, farming is, is, is not only provides food for our table and jobs in our community, but it's part of our identity here in Whatcom County. I think that we need to keep uh, farm strong in our community. Uh, on the flooding issue, because I think that's, that's really related to this, you know, uh, we had a loss of life in this community uh, last year with flooding, and, uh, and that, that's extremely tragic, of course. People lost their homes, tragic. We also had loss of farmland, though. Our farmers were hit hard by, by, by uh, the results of flooding along the Nooksack River. Uh, I'm fully committed to, uh, to working uh, to try to find solutions that, that benefit fish farms and people along the Nooksack. I think it was referenced the side channel project from Whatcom County. That's great. I know the state helped provide funding for that. I think we need more of these projects. I think we need to look at ways, uh, look at all options on the table when it comes to managing uh, flooding along the Nooksack River. We know that the likelihood is to increase with climate change, and we need to be looking at these through a scientific and technical lens when we make these decisions. Thank you. something that is tangible and real that we can do to help the farmers knowing that there's going to be flooding because nothing has been done to prevent it very little has been done to prevent it is try to help the farmers when they go to help the other residents in our community is maybe have some sort of a uh, an amortization on the the value of their their equipment that they're using so that they can receive maybe tax breaks or things like that because those very same tractors that they farm with are the same tractors that they're using to go help our community members and that is an actual answer to something that I would look into I'm gonna hand it back. So, same question to you two. Um, can I call you by your first names? Is that okay, Sharon and Simon? Thank you. And for those of you that are in the radio audience, uh, you should be here because the expressions here and in the audience are something to see, and it's much better than Thursday night football. <laughs> and the other thing I just realized is I've never been in a situation like this where they didn't have a timer. <laughs> Sorry, Dick. So another tone. This first question is for Sharon. Sharon. Washington State has taken several actions to cut carbon emissions with the Clean Energy Transformation Act, removing uses of fossil fuel to produce electricity. Let me rephrase that. Washington State has taken several actions to cut carbon emissions with the Clean Energy Transformation Act, removing use of fossil fuels to produce electricity. Looking to phase out the sale of vehicles with internal combustion engines by 2035, proposing adoption of rules to completely to replace natural gas with electricity. How do you impact of these legislative actions on our current infrastructure's ability to meet the demands of the increased electric usage needs? Do you? 
view electrification impacting cost of living for most citizens and businesses? Sharon? So I do not support the ban on new gasoline-powered cars. I am a big fan of incentives to get people to protect the environment and to coordinate actions, not bans. Those very rarely work, and they're very rarely the appropriate policy. We do need to build new electricity infrastructure, especially transmission lines that can get the, the electricity from the part of the state where it's produced to the parts of the states that's needed. We also need to figure out how we're going to provide more electricity to homes and more electricity to vehicles. Because if you look at the cost per mile of an electric vehicle versus a gasoline-powered vehicle, it is cheaper. And it also means that we're a little bit more resilient to global swings of the economy when Vladimir Putin decides to start a war in Ukraine. He can't necessarily influence the cost of the electricity coming from our solar panels. That's really important. When I look at energy efficiency legislation, I look at whether or not it's going to save the homeowner money, the person that's actually living in that home. If it is, then I'll vote for it. If it's not, then I'm going to vote against it. But that has to be part of that. that I call that a cost-benefit analysis in economics, and that's really important. As to whether or not we should ban gas or ban this, again, I'm not a fan of it, but we do need to be planning out this infrastructure for the future. The reason that people are able to use natural gas in their homes and cost-effectively is there's a big cost of maintaining that system, and we're able to spread it over a large number of homes. And so if we're starting to see more and more people move away from natural gas, we need to do some planning ahead of time, not behind time, to make sure the people that are still left on that network aren't facing absurdly high costs. Simon? I just want to make sure this microphone works. It sounds like it does. Uh, well, Representative Shoemake referenced the Economics 101 course that I have taken before, and I want to talk about Economics 101 uh, here a little bit. You know, in terms of, we have to remember, every tax, every regulation, every energy code uh, that Representative Shoemaker votes for to, to lead us to this net electrification ends up being a higher tax on working class people. It makes the cost of your goods more expensive. It's also not necessarily immune to supply chain issues. I mean, uh, when we talk about lithium batteries or rare earth elements such as yttrium, where are we getting those products? We're getting them from other nations internationally. Uh, we're mining them uh, and then buying those uh, imports. We're also getting them from nations like uh, China that oftentimes impose barriers on rare earth elements. So it's not entirely immune to the commodities market. Uh, here's what I think. I think that we can move towards a uh, environment and an economy that uses more electrification, but we have to do so in a way that makes sense. And the way to do that is not just by regulating and forcing people with a new tax to adapt there and get there faster. The only reason that in some cases it might be cheaper is because there are heavy government subsidies to do so. It's not because the free market itself is able to lead us there. And so I think we have to be careful about the way we, we head towards that uh, potential green future. You absolutely have a rebuttal, and we're stealing your microphone. No worries. Um, so I spoke to a man up in Sandy Point the other day, and he, we were talking about the costs and how we have to do better for our seniors that are living in their homes. And that's why one of the reasons that I supported a tax cut on people selling their homes for $1.5 or less. One of the things that he said to me is he pointed to his hybrid electric car. So it was a plug-in hybrid. And he was saying that he can drive to, back and forth to town, and it's not very expensive because it runs on electricity. 
He was proud that he had bought that. He was glad that he had bought that. And he had the foresight to have bought that. I want to make sure everyone can afford, whether it's a plug-in hybrid or an all-electric car. And we got to do that by making sure that we're building out the infrastructure to recharge that, to make sure that we have the policy that allows you to build those charging stations going forward, and make sure that we have the a capacity to build those batteries and build those recycling factories here in Washington State. Okay, the next question. I'm not allowed to respond to that, am I? <laughs> Just trying to keep it light. So this one is to Simon Sefcik. Senator Sefcik, do you support the recent and projected increases in the state budget, which is placing added financial burden on taxpayers and families? So I'm assuming by that question you're referencing the in increased uh, budget surplus projections. Is, is that correct? Cor correct. Yes, as I talked about earlier, you know, we we had a, a we have a projected about 15 to 16 billion dollar budget surplus, and uh, again, I think that this is sign this is a, a telltale sign that we should have had tax relief. You know, when you're getting more money, this is a great opportunity where we could have given the people money back, but the legislature chose not to do that. The legislature chose not to have any type of tax relief. When it comes to this electrification issue, too, it's important to to understand. This electricity has to come from somewhere. We don't even have a grid or an infrastructure that can get us to that point by 2030. California has spent billions of dollars more trying to get us there, and they don't even have a grid uh, that's capable of, of getting to that point. You know, this dream of, of where everybody could be able to buy a, a hybrid car would take extraordinary expenses and would involve extremely high subsidies, which would, again, involve raise, raising your taxes even more. You saw that Representative Alicia Rule didn't vote for a lot of taxes that Representative Sharon Shoemake has. Again, I think everybody that's here should watch this forum because I'm running against somebody who has a PhD in economics that cannot explain the difference between an income tax and a capital, how, how it's not a, an income tax, a capital gains tax. That, that is shocking to me. And anybody that's unsure about how to vote, remember that Representative Shoemake promised you she would not support an income tax. A few months later, she went around and did exactly that. You have an obligation ultimately to hear the truth from your elected officials. That's what I want to be able to provide to you because ultimately this election is not about me. This election is not about Representative Shoemake. This election is about all of you. It's about your hopes and your dreams. It's about the fact that you're getting priced out of your homes. It's about the fact that your taxes continue to rise and things get more and more difficult. And so yes, I think the estimated budget surplus is an exact reason as to why we should have had tax relief. But that's not going to happen if we keep voting for the same people that created the problems. You cannot empower the people that caused the problems with the solutions. Thank you. Unfortunately, that applause took up most of your time. Rebuttal? I don't mind. So we did provide tax relief. I spoke earlier about the BNO tax credits that we passed and also raising the level. Now making up to $125,000 a year, don't even need to file for their B&O. I think that's impressive, and this is going to usher in a new age of small business and exploration. We also passed a working families tax credit. That helps out the people that need it, need it the most, and there's over half a million kids in the state of Washington State whose families are going to see between $400 to $1,200 in rebates in January that's going to help those families out and move forward. 
Look, everyone wants the government to spend money on the things that they want to see more of, whether it's a road in front of your house or the good schools that your kids go to. I want to see that too. We know that we need schools, we know we need roads, we know we need public safety for a well-functioning economy. And so I want to make sure that when we have taxes, they don't fall on working people, and instead they fall on the very, very wealthy who right now are not paying their fair share. Thank you, Sharon. Simon, you have 30 seconds. Yeah. If, if you were listening closely, notice she said the words in January. That's because there was no tax relief this year, and that was the whole point. That there was a, a B&O tax credit relief that comes into effect in January, the same time that all the taxes Rep. Schumick also voted for are going to come into effect. There was no tax relief in this legislative session. Every time I've debated Representative Schumick, she said that I'm a great debater, but I make for a bad senator. It has nothing to do with my debate abilities, and it has everything to do with your inability as a legislator to represent County. That's why I'm opposed to more tax increases and more government regulation. We move back to our state representative candidates in position one, Alicia and Tasha. And we'll start with Alicia Rule with this question. There is an ever-increasing need in this state for new industry and businesses along with the jobs they provide. Do you have any concrete ideas on how to remove the obstacles impacting this economic growth? I'm sorry, I, I was messing with the microphone. Would sure. you mind repeating the question? <laughs> There's an ever-increasing need in this state for new industry and businesses along with the jobs they provide. Do you have any concrete ideas on how to remove the obstacles impacting this economic growth? Thank you for the question. Uh, I accidentally became a small business owner as a therapist when I realized that opening a private practice really means running a business. And what I learned very quickly is that the amount of regulation and the amount of hoops to jump through as a business owner is really challenging. So I am committed to working hard to make that easier and productive for small business owners, particularly because small business owners really are our neighbors and our friends. Uh, that is why both of the major business um, organizations, AWB and IB, have supported my campaign. Thank you. Tasha? Uh, same answer. Uh, the Democratic government majority party has been very um, over-regulating for a very long time, and it's been making it very difficult and toxic for small businesses to really thrive in our communities. Uh, I saw it in law enforcement when, in 2021 when when they passed 14 different legislation against law enforcement, and we've all seen the impacts of that. It's because uh, I refer to it as uh, in the small business world or as a supervisor, like I was with the Bellingham Police Department, micromanaging your people. Uh, I see the government as micromanaging, and it's really, um, it, it takes it, makes it so hard to be creative and, uh, thrive in our businesses because someone's always and it shows us a deep lack of trust in the people in your community and so we need to deregulate and let businesses thrive so that our communities can thrive I would just add that I think it's important to have owner in the room where decisions are being made and that is something that I can add into a lot of conversation um, on both sides of the aisle because of my experiences as a small business owner. Um, I've also worked to champion things across Washington State that are helpful to business and small business, particularly the Main Street programs. So um, my experience in the city of Blaine was that we, 
loved the Main Street program and ran into some barriers that made it difficult for the Main Street program to work really well for towns. So I championed legislation that brought money back to the Main Street program and created a program specifically for towns our size. So now you see programs um, up and running in, in Ferndale and up and coming in Point Roberts and um, it, it's also being considered in Sumas and we've got an active Main Street program in Bellingham. Thank you. Okay. This question to Tasha Thompson. What positive actions might be employed by the legislature to address police recruitment shortfalls at both the state and local levels? Well, I can go right back to uh, the police legislation and refer to uh, the, my past, my last comment with micromanagement shows a distinct lack of trust in uh, what they're micromanaging. And that, in this case, was law enforcement. Uh, I have a lot of experience. She spoke as a small business owner. Uh, I, I'm a 25-year veteran of law enforcement, and I was actually a recruiter for the Bellingham Police Department, and so I have plenty of ideas on how to recruit people. But the first thing is they need leaders in their government who trust them to do the job that they're hired to do, because without trusting... <laughs> without that trust you don't have the right culture. And without the right culture, you're not gonna get the right people. I said this before at a Rotary Club. Um, they asked me, how do we get more Bellingham Police off, or people to uh, apply to the Bellingham Police Department? And I said, you have to change the culture in Bellingham. When, uh, when people in the community are allowed to bring a paper mache pig dressed as an officer into our parking lot and let their kids beat on it, that's a culture issue. And the leaders didn't say anything, they were silent. And the message that was received by law enforcement in our communities with this legislation that was passed was a message that says, you don't trust us. You, we are, as a police officer, I understand deeply uh, the power that I have over people to take away their constitutional right for freedoms. And I respect that so much. And so when they came at me because of something that happened in a totally different state with totally different courts and totally different laws, it spoke loudly to their law enforcement officers. And so I need to be down there because they know cops in this community. If you want cops, they need to know that there's someone down there that has their back. I first want to thank my opponent for the service that she's given to our community um, as a law enforcement officer. And then I want to make sure that you understand that I'm one of two Democrats who supported law enforcement the whole way through. And because of that, the Fraternal Order of Police has chosen to support my campaign solely. Um, I took leadership in places that were really challenging to do that. And I did that because I know, as a, a former social worker who worked side by side with law enforcement, that we have to work together in order to be able to serve you better. That means we do need to support our law enforcement in a much better way. And we also need to be able to work with all of our broken systems, the mental health system and the court system and our jail, our sorely needed replaced jail, as well as our current law enforcement and supporting and booing um, who we have in recruiting more. So I am up for the job. I appreciate that I have been trusted and that's why they've chosen me to, to go into these rooms where people are often heated 
and don't trust each other and bring people together, and I'm committed to doing that. I've spent 25 years bringing people together. I've spent 25 years walking into houses where people are very heated and being a professional problem solver for them. I will be a professional problem solver in Olympia, and that is why I'm endorsed by Washington Council of Police and Sheriffs, Sheriff Bill Elfo, former Police Chief Flo Simon, former Police Chief Cook, uh, former Whatcom County Prosecutor Dave McEachran, and the Washington State FOP um, Matt Herzog Memorial Lodge 24, which is our local FOP lodge who I've, with people that I've worked with for many, many years. I'm back. This time I get you, Dan, and you, Joe, if you're ready for this. First question for position two. Dan. Is this for? Dan. Okay. Do you support or oppose the idea of school curriculums be, being transparent so that parents get, a be, get to better know what their children are being taught? A question near and dear to my heart. So the question again, because you have that you idiot look in your eye. Here's what I'm saying. Well, Do you uh, use Commissioner Bell, the, the look on my face is because up here the audio is a, a little wonky, and I was trying to, you're, you're borderline Charlie Brown's teacher on that microphone, and I mean that with the utmost of respect, sir. <laughs> Can't be the only one telling jokes. Wah, 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 wah. You're right. So you want to want the question again, Wawa? Yes, please, sir. Do you support or oppose the idea of school curriculums being transparent so that parents can better know what their children are being taught? Yes. <laughs> Minute 50 left. All right. Transparency. Do I support transparency? in our school system, our public school system, where we are required to send our children to spend six or seven hours a day, and do I want transparency with our kids in that environment? Again, yes, very much so. I think that it is uh, crucially important, uh, not only in the, the school system, but in government in general, for full transparency, considering that we are a government of the people, for the people, by the people, that we should be transparent in government, and especially in the school system. And with that, I also feel that there are some issues that have uh, arisen as of the last couple years that have gone the other direction, and I would like to see those things reinstated into the uh, proper hierarchy, so to speak. And what I mean by that is the community elects school board members. The school board members then hire superintendents. Superintendents then have the staff that is the school. But ultimately, the community has the reins because that's how that works in a representative government. And that's not what's happening now as school boards have taken the role to know more than the parents or think they know more than the parents and are not listening to the will of the parents in the community. And that is very, very frustrating. And as a result, we have seen some very 
upsetting things, especially with two years of uh, Zoom learning that have been happening in the school system. And I think that complete transparency, again, is optimum. Thank you, Dan. Joe, do you need me to repeat the question, or should I bring up Linus? Uh, um, no, I just, how much time do I have? You have a minute. One minute, thank you. Okay, great, thank you, I appreciate it. Um, I'm, I'm a product of, uh, of Washington State Public Schools. Uh, as I said, I have a two-year-old. He's gonna be a product of Washington State Public Schools. I was a preschool teacher before I got into this world of public service. I spent the last decade working at the local, state, and federal levels of government. I think we need to have a strong uh, education system from preschool through higher education, and, and that includes our career and technical colleges. Uh, and I think that parents play a foundational role in terms of, uh, of, of that. Um, I, I, I do want to pivot here. Look, I, I make this, I'm intending to make this campaign largely about myself. I think anyone who knows me will say so. Um, but I have to say, it is very interesting to me to hear my opponent talk about the need for transparency when it comes to elected officials. My opponent had a podcast that he had 54 episodes of he made last year that is no longer available online. It has been removed from Spotify, from YouTube, from Audible. I think voters have a right to know where people stand on issues. I agree transparency is important. I think people need to be held accountable when uh, our elected officials need to be held accountable and that voters have a right to know where people stand on issues. You, Dan, you have a 30 second rebuttal. Could you repeat the question for me, please? <laughs> Do you support or oppose the idea of school curriculums trans being transparent so that parents can better know what their children are being taught. 30 seconds. Thank you. I was just making sure that a different question wasn't posed and I dozed off for a minute. Yeah, transparency in the school system, absolutely. And uh, my opponent wants to keep banging on the drum and going off topic and you know, I can't stop them. Free speech, First Amendment, America. I love America. You have at her, Joe, it's fantastic. But the reality is, I'm gonna win on issues. Not character assassination, not stuff coming out of the Herald or the other media sources. I'm going to win on the issues, which is why my opponent is detracting from the issues because he knows he cannot win on the issues. Next, next question, uh, Joe, I'm gonna start with you on this one. The high cost of housing in Whatcom County is still a crisis for many residents and a major obstacle for businesses wanting to create jobs. If elected, are you willing to hold oversight hearings on these issues, listen to citizens, and legislate where needed to hold agencies accountable? Housing question. Thank you, Ken. And just to clarify, um, I wasn't trying to um, go after the character of my opponent. It's simply to say I think transparency uh, is important um, I think that transparency is important, and, and that was my point. I don't know what was said on those podcast episodes um, because they're not available. So again, the question. Thank you. Yeah, Ken, I, I got it on housing. Happy, happy to talk about housing. Thank you very much. Um, you know, economics has been brought up a few times today. We, we, we have, I believe, in supply and demand economics. We have a housing shortage uh, crisis in our community, and it's leading to the high cost of, of, of housing, unfortunately. Um, I know this firsthand. My rent went up 35% last year in Bellingham, uh, $600 a month. It's very challenging for, for my family when we were, had a one-year-old at the time. 
Uh, I think we need to build more housing. I absolutely think we need to be building more housing, uh, particularly in, in, uh, in our urban areas and around transit. Fully support that. And when it comes to listening to, with folks about the best way to do that, yeah, I pride myself on being a, a listener and trying, I would represent the views of, of those uh, in, in Olympia uh, as a listen first leader. Um, when I talk to, to economic uh, development leaders in our community, like the regional port, uh, I'm sorry, the regional chamber of commerce, the port of Bellingham, housing and childcare shortages come up every time uh, in terms of it, how it detracts from our economy's ability to grow. We simply do not have enough workforce housing and childcare in our community, so businesses are not starting here or relocating here. So fully committed to resolving this issue, and I hope to get, get the chance to do so in Olympia. Yes, they are on our agenda, and I'm gonna go back to one question that's not being answered in this. Are you willing to hold oversight hearings on these? Well, thanks, Ken. It, it's hard for me to say oversight hearings because I don't know what the oversight would be of. Uh, so I'm not necessarily opposed to the idea. I guess I just, uh, I, I'm confused on, on who we would be overseeing and what that would be about. Dan, one minute. Uh, with regards to the oversight hearings as well, I'd be interested to see what that panel looks like and see what agencies we'd be overseeing. Uh, when we talk about housing, uh, affordability, availability, rent, and things like that, uh, part of the issue is an outdated Growth Management Act, which is 13 points from over 30 years ago that has been severely abused and misused, and they're focusing on just a small part of that act and not the whole act. Uh, and then that transcends into when you go to build your home, you're riddled with permitting fees and everything else. In fact, per every $1,000 that's added to the cost of a home, you're pricing out 2,100 families. So permitting and planning and the over-response to climate change is part of the issue that we're having severely in housing. You do have 30 seconds. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I think when we talk about housing affordability, to just to clarify and build off of, of what I said previously, because I, um, I don't disagree that we need to look at permitting and, and challenges there and red tape. Um, but, you know, I know we often talk about low-income housing, and I think, yeah, of course, we need to be looking at that. But really, I think we need to be looking at workforce housing and building more of that in our community, which to me, I think everybody deserves a roof over their head in our community. I think people deserve to live where they work and play. Um, but to me, it's, as a, it's not just a moral issue, but it's an economic issue as well. So I fully support, um, fully support diving into this issue in Olympia. Sorry, I was proofreading some of my upcoming questions. <laughs> Find my page. All right, so we're back to our Senate candidates, our state Senate candidates. And we begin with Simon Sefcik. Does the legislature have a role to play in the management of the Nooksack River as it relates to flood management and prevention? Simon? Well, Joe, thank you for the question. And, and the answer is yes, the legislature can do more. The Whatcom County Council can also do more to address the situation going on in the Nooksack River. I mean, uh, some of you were there. You remember when I got first, the, the first 
I don't know if this microphone is working, but the first uh, meeting that I had when I got appointed was to go and meet with some of you up in Sumas and to hear your concerns. I was happy to work with both of these representatives uh, to secure flood funding and an individual assistance program uh, so that individuals can, can be provided with individual assistance that they need, but that's not the only answer. We do need to look at more water storage uh, potential answers. We need to look at uh, strategic sediment removal, and I think we do need to look at strategic buyouts. Here's what I know. We are not going to solve this problem if we can continue to do nothing. The, the answer right now seems to be to keep talking about it, to keep studying it, uh, but at this point we need actual action. And again, we saw a perfect example where the Everson side channel product, uh, project should not cost more than $80,000 for the permit and $8,000 for the project itself. If you're looking for an example of what's wrong with government, that's a perfect example. It makes things more expensive. And, and, and that to me is always the interesting thing because I think you've heard every single one of these candidates talk about how we do need to look into the permitting process. We do need to look into the burdensome regulations. Let me ask you the question, which group is the one that continues to impo impose more of those permits and regulations? Which group is the one that continues to add burden after burden to our uh, housing community, to those that want to be able to buy a home someday? And the answer is that it hasn't been the Republican Party. It's been the Democratic Party that adds new element after new element that makes your life more and more unaffordable, that increases the cost of housing. The BIAW said that Representative Shoemaker voted for four of the laws, the worst laws from the legislative session that make housing more expensive. I want to be able to live here. I want to be able to live the American dream and buy a home here, raise a family, but it seems more and more impossible because of regulation after regulation. As soon as it was safe to travel, I was joining the work crews, helping people clean out their homes in Nooksack, Everson, and Sumas. Some of them were my friends. Some of the people had no idea it was their state representative standing next to them, taking the debris and throwing it into a dumpster or wiping down the shelves at the car parts dealership up in Sumas. I was proud to do that work. I was proud to stand with folks. I see some of the folks in the room here that joined with me on those work groups. So I thank you all. We do need to do more work on the Nooksack flooding. And I'll tell you what happened the last 10 years. Nothing went anywhere. We had to build a dress Nooksack. It never went anywhere. I want a plan that we can permit and that we can actually get done. The side channel is just a start, but it does actually provide safety for the people in Nooksack, Everson, and Sumas. Not enough, absolutely not enough, but you measure twice, cut once. And we need to make sure that we have a plan that understands that this is a dynamic, complicated river. And we have a lot of folks to protect, and we don't want to make sure that if we can get the water to go faster through Everson, it'll just go faster through Sumas as well and potentially flood those folks there. So I've been working on individual assistance programs. I've been working Simon. with Canadians and tribes to find a way to reduce the risk of flooding. And I am happy to talk to any of you okay. afterward. On to Simon for a rebuttal. I mean, I, I was just going to say here, I, I do appreciate the work that I think every single one of these people has, has done in terms of going and, and helping the, the flood victims. I mean, th this is an example to me, uh, and some of you may disagree with me, but I mean, I, I think this is a great example of where ultimately when your home floods, your question isn't who did you vote for in the last election. Your question when you're getting rescued by a neighbor isn't are you a Republican or a Democrat. Uh, you help each other out because you're a neighbor. And that's why ultimately, you know, for, for all of the disagreements that you've seen tonight and that I 
will continue to illuminate. Uh, I do think that we are not just a conglomeration of red precincts and blue precincts, and we can work together on some of these issues. All right, next question goes to Sharon Shoemake. Does the legislature have a role to play in addressing soaring housing costs, and can you suggest policy changes that might affect these high costs? Yeah, we have to do better. I doorbelled someone whose rent went from $1,200 a month to $1,800 in just one month. That is crushing families, and it's making our homeless problem that much worse. So I want to go regulation by regulation and figure out what are things that we still want to protect our values, make sure that we can get along with our neighbors and live next to other people, and what are things that are just left over from the 1960s. A big one of those is thinking about um, allowing people to build more in cities and making that easier. That means condo liability reform. That makes it easier for builders to build condos, especially the smaller condos, in all the neighborhoods. This needs to be a statewide solution. We also need to look at zoning and land use reform. So I had a bill last session that would have said every single single family home with some restrictions in a city is allowed an attached and a detached accessory dwelling unit or garden cottage. This is not gonna solve everything, but it is gonna get some homes built. It'll create affordability. And you know what? I don't think the city should be able to tell you whether or not you can turn your garage into an apartment for a kid or an elder person. We have to allow people to build more homes. I live in the lettered streets in Bellingham. I think it is ridiculous that you cannot build sixplexes there. My house as it is today, it's over 100 years old, could not be built today. And that is because we have over-regulated this. I saw your heads nodding when I did that ADU bill. I want you to know that Simon Sevzik voted against it. And that's because not all the mayors wanted to see that change. They felt like they were being overstepped but let me tell you why it's important for the state to have a role here. It's because one city cannot build affordability on its own. If Bellingham doesn't build enough, people drive until they qualify and they bid up homes in Sumas. They build up homes in Everson, they bid up homes in Ferndale, and we are seeing that. So we have to be able to think about all the people in Washington state and make sure that we're providing affordability statewide. Yeah, so that bill that I voted against, also voted against. The only thing bipartisan about that bill was both parties didn't like it uh, because it would have been extraordinarily prohibitive. Uh, and you, you keep talking about deregulating, then why is it that every single year you find a way to vote for a new regulation or a new element to the Growth Management Act that increases the cost of housing? You know, this is personal for me. I'm a renter, I want to be able to buy a home, but Representative Shoemake got elected and said her top priority was affordable housing. The problem has only gotten worse, and that's why affordable housing groups, builders, agree with me that we need to deregulate. You've said we need to deregulate. Then why is it that year after year the legislature imposes new burdens, new fees? 23.8% of all housing costs come from permitting fees and the consequences of those delays alone. The average cost of a home in Whatcom County is $650,000. People cannot afford to live here, and more government regulation simply isn't going to fix those problems. That's why, again, it's so important to distinguish somebody's rhetoric from their record. And that's why I'm asking you for your vote. I just want to raise of hands. Um, who here has gotten a permit to build something? Did you go down to Olympia or did you go to City Hall? 
you went to City Hall, right? So why is Simon saying that he needs to be the one that's regulating the permits down in Olympia? This is a city decision. And so if we want to make sure that the cities are providing lower permit fees, then we need to possibly override them and show some leadership like I did with that ADU bill. I think it's really under important to understand the economics of our housing market and to be able to think through all the different structures and the ways that we regulate each of pe people. I think that's really important. One of the changes that I'd like to see in the Growth Management Act is that when we plan for the future, we also plan for affordable housing. All right. On to Ken. 20 bucks to respond. I, I, I cannot be bought. <laughs> okay, so now we're going to move on to fire, and it's not just here. Many, uh, this is going to go to uh, uh, Tasha and Alicia, and we're going to start with Tasha. Uh, many um, have reasonable concerns. I'm getting old and vain. Many have reasonable concerns about forest and wildfires. Some have pointed out that various agencies no longer are clearing brush and dead trees, which helps to provide more fuel. Do you think there are things the state can do to reduce forest wildfires? I'd like to see the lake again from my house. I got it. Um, so I think we're going to go back to deregulation. Uh, there's regulations that got in the way that uh, prevented some of our uh, forestry community from being able to go in and, and take away those excess um, logs and brush that are then excessively drying out and causing hotter and hotter fires that burn hotter and, and burn more of our um, our land and our forestry. And so uh, I've I've had several conversations with people in the logging community. My mom was a logger um, growing up. <laughs> she drove a log truck, and it's still the opening act for the Deming Log Show every year. And so I have a strong uh, ties to the logging community. And uh, I don't know everything about logging, but that is one thing that in, in uh, communication with him is there has been an overregulation that does prevent removal of that excess uh, fuel that is causing hotter and hotter wildfires. And so... We need to listen to the people that know what they're talking about, and I will listen to the people that have been in the logging community that I'm in part somewhat related to and I've worked with for many, many years to get a better, more comprehensive plan that promotes uh, logging and forestry as a good industry here in Washington County and also uh, prevents future, um, or at least limits future wildfires. Alicia? Thank you. I think that... The key here is balance, and uh, I'm proud to say that I also come from a family of loggers and um, have been supported by both the timber industry and also conservation groups. Um, I think it's important that we sit down and make these decisions together so that we can see good policy that allows for production of good products, um, products that are sustainable, like that the kind that we like to use. Um, many of us like to use wood products and paper. Um, so we want to be able to do that, but we also want to make sure and manage our forests, and we want to make sure to keep things in balance. So like everything else, we have to have everybody at the table to talk about the details so that we can produce legislation that serves us well in good balance. Tasha, you have 30 seconds. You're done? Okay, we're going to go back to schools. 
And Alicia, we're going to start with you. Schools continue to receive more and more money, uh, including COVID aid and state budget increases, yet the school uh, scores are dropping and more parents are looking for alternatives to public school. Uh, charter schools are increasing, private and homeschooling is on the increase. What needs to change? Thank you for asking this excellent question. As a product of this very school that we're sitting in right now, I'm a proud supporter of public schools. I think what we need to do is improve our public schools so that they can work for everybody. And that's why I've worked really hard to produce um, good legislation like outdoor education that allows children to get out of the four walls of a classroom and learn outside. Uh, that's great for some kids. Their test scores actually improve better than if they were in the four walls of a classroom. They also have fun, and that is creating the next uh, workforce in some of these other industries that we just talked about, like um, fishing and farming and, and timber. Um, I also am very proud to have brought mental health services into our schools when our kids had gone through so much because we know very, very clearly that our kids are struggling and they're not able to learn their mathematics and ABCs when they're coming in with a backpack full of stress and trauma. So um, I think we can do better in our public schools. I do also support charter schools. I think that there are some times where we need to look at alternatives that work for kids who aren't thriving in our public schools. And it's really important that every kid who comes from our county and our state has an opportunity to thrive in their youth and then also in a pathway that works really well um, into their adulthood. Lastly, I'll say that I worked very closely on producing some um, really exciting new legislation around skills centers. There are some youth from this very school at Meridian and also around the county and now the state that will be doing apprenticeships and doing skills-based learning, working with their hands and learning how to work in construction and other industries so that they're ready to hit the ground running when we have a workforce shortage that has been at the, at the linchpin of many of our problems in our economy. Um, and really just in our daily lives. So I'll continue doing that work so that people, whether they choose to go to college or not, can earn a living wage in our community. Thank you, Alicia. Tasha? Thank you. Um, Washington State does have one of the highest um, expenditures per student in the nation, but unfortunately we are 31st in the nation for um, our learning uh, the results that we get out of that spending. And so just spending more money is not necessarily the answer. I, am, uh, I support charter schools. I support creativity and, um, and the money following the, the child. And <laughs> it allows for more parental choice and control. And fiscally, it's actually better for the taxpayers. 47 out of 52 metrics found that choice programs generated overall fiscal savings for the taxpayers, which is something we're all looking for. I am supported by the Associated General Contractors and endorsed by them that have a program called Core Plus Construction, and that is school credit that kids can learn while they're learning a trades skill. And so we need to expand programs because a lot of people in high school, they struggle with their why and because they're all being pushed toward one option of college, and we need Tasha. to expand the trades. Time. Alicia, 30 seconds. Thank you. I'm so glad that my opponent supports my work in the expansion of the trades. 
um, because of the budget that we were able to pass around this and the actual bill, we will have continued expansion of these skill centers. And I was able to visit it just recently, and it was pretty neat to see because what I heard was I heard a, a budding workforce learning, and um, they were in an environment that had the actual equipment. And the teachers were those who have been doing this work for many years. And what they said is, you better get that angle right. <laughs> um, because if you don't get that angle right, this house isn't going to work. And I saw kids whose eyes lit up because they knew that they were doing the work that they were meant to do. And we have a workforce shortage there, so we need to continue to support the, and grow these programs. All right, we move on to our position two candidates, Joe and Dan. And we start with uh, Joe Timmons. In recent years, an increasing share of the motor vehicle taxes have been devoted to alternative forms of transportation. Is this the right focus? Yeah, well, thank you, Joe, for the question. I'm just trying to get my head around it. It's, it's uh, yeah. You know, is, is, it, is, it the right, is it the right approach? You know, I think we need to be looking at these issues holistically, right? I, I know the issue around uh, electrification came up earlier. Uh, I think we need to be looking at, at that. I think we need to be providing transit for people to get to work and to get to school. I think we need to be investing in our uh, electric, our EV charging infrastructure for those who can't afford and those who want uh, electric vehicles. Uh, the, when it comes to vehicles, uh, the, the, the mode of travel in our world is changing. We now have uh, pickup trucks, right, that are electric. We now, we have, here in Ferndale, we have an electric bus manufacturer called Vicinity Motor Corp. They do amazing work. So I do think that we need to be looking at other forms of transportation other than just diesel and gas-powered uh, vehicles. Um, in terms of whether it's the right approach or not, I'd have to look at the budget holistically to see whether that was the right, the right decision. And, and frankly, I think we need to see where, the, as has been said over and over again today, where the money goes and, and look at these things over time and if changes are made to make those modifications. I will agree that we are very innovative in the United States of America. And with innovation, entrepreneurism, and creativity, we as a people evolve and create these things like alternative forms of transportation all on our own without the government having to mandate it out of Olympia. It's called the free market and it's America. With that being said, yeah, I, I'm not against an electric car. I don't think it has to be the only mode of transportation, considering that the governor, your boss, I believe, uh, was considering taking the Snake River dams out, which is hydroelectric, which creates electricity. And now we're gonna be looking at all electric vehicles, another mandate out of Olympia, telling us how we are allowed to travel in this country. Yeah, you know, I think there was a, a good point brought up there about um, not requiring a, a certain mode of transportation for, for an entire population of people. 
you know, we have people that live in urban environments, we have people that live in rural environments. There's not one mode of transportation that's going to work for everybody. I don't think getting rid of gas power cars is going to work for everybody overnight. You know, I, not everybody's going to be able to take a bus to get to work. Not everybody's going to be able to take a bus to get to school. So I think providing more transit or more options when it comes to transportation is the best thing we can do for our community to make sure that we're serving people uh, so that way that they, they can get around in the way that works best for them. All right, another question for these two candidates, and we start with Dan Johnson. What would you do to address water management in the Nooksack Basin, and this includes devastating flooding as well as low stream flows? Sorry, Joe, one more time. With the, I think it was like the third word I didn't understand. What would you do to address, uh, the, to address water management in the Nooksack Basin? This would include devastating flooding as well as low stream flows. Thank you, uh, got it now. So what are we gonna do to address flooding? And gosh, two minutes, I'll talk fast. Start at the, start at the bay, right? Because we're looking at a lot of silt out in the bay and create a channel there. Something that's been done in the past and was stopped being done in the mid 90s, I believe it was, was the uh, gravel removal out of the river itself in the lower flatter parts of the river where it doesn't affect the, directly affect the uh, spawning beds. And, you know, maybe we look at some sort of a, uh, a water storage upriver above maybe the, the spawning areas. Again, we got to make sure that the, the salmon are protected, and I understand that, but we also have to make sure that our farmlands are protected, the people that live by the rivers are protected as well. And it's going to be, I think the term is being used as holistic approach. And yeah, it has to be inclusive. It has to do all of that. And what I don't agree with is letting the, the river just wander wherever it wants to go, especially considering uh, earlier this year, uh, there was a riparian bill that failed, but that was gonna require 250 or 275 foot buffers from the shoreline encroaching heavily on our farmlands, to go back to that earlier question, uh, that would make it unusable land for our farmers, which is gonna make it harder on the farmers. And then when we watch the rivers flood and we see the riparian, which is supposed to be protected by this uh, current form of river management, the riparian is going downstream, making the stream brown because there's full root ball trees going down and everything else. So the riparian is taken away from it. The very thing that they're trying to preserve is getting washed away by the mismanage of, of the riverbed itself. And I think that's where we start is right in the middle and then start working out from there. You have a minute, Joe. Thanks. Uh, yeah, it, it's hard in two minutes, and it's, it's even more so in one. This is such a complicated issue. There's no silver bullet, unfortunately, uh, unlike uh, like, like a lot of uh, the challenges we're facing in our community. What I'll say is, um, you know, my heart goes out to the communities impacted by flooding last year. I uh, met with constituents and, and toured homes that were, that were destroyed. Um, I, uh, I did some volunteer cleanup efforts myself, as Representative Shoemake said she did. Uh, it's challenging. It's tough out there. I totally get that, and uh, my heart goes out to the community, and I want to I give them uh, the appropriate applause that they deserve for stepping up in that time of need. 
So I think we do need to look at these issues holistically. I think we need to be finding solutions that uh, benefit fish, farms, and communities. So I'm fully committed to that. But I also think that we need to be working more closely with our state's emergency uh, management division through the state's military department to make sure that, that the state is working with local communities to plan and respond better in times of natural disasters, whether it's an earthquake, whether it's a flood, or whether it's a wildfire. So if we take the gravel out of the river, it's probably not going to flood as much. And we have about five gravel pits in Whatcom County with a finite amount of gravel. And we have a river system that gives us renewable resource in the form of gravel annually. I think that we can marry some concepts up here. And when those gravel pits run out of gravel, and we got to start trucking it in from out of area instead of taking a renewable resource from right here in our own county, well, I got to tell you, if you think that the housing costs are high now, wait till we start getting gravel from Snohomish. That is going to exponentially affect the prices. All right, very good. We're running a little early, actually. But we'll move on to now to the lightning round, and these are questions, specific questions that will be asked of all six candidates. Uh, so uh, each you'll have two minutes to answer each question. Each candidate will have two answer or two minutes to answer each question. All right. So we start. Uh, well, uh, this is our question: What is the state's role in abortion, and should we be a sanctuary state? And should state money be used to pay for abortion? We start with Simon Sefcik. You have two minutes. Testing. Okay, good. Well, I, I think we, we have to acknowledge uh, that this is a, a difficult and, and sensitive topic. And uh, I think it's, as I've said before, uh, I believe in the sanctity and the value of all human life. Uh, that's, that's where I am. And I understand that uh, Chapter 9 of our RCWs has been clear about this, and, and the people have voted on this. Uh, I did vote against uh, HB 1851 this year, uh, which expanded uh, who is allowed to provide those types of procedures beyond even the wording of the original initiative, which is a physician, and it expanded it to uh, physician's assistants, to advanced registered nurse practitioners, and about 30 other medical categories that weren't even defined uh, clearly in that RCW or in that statute, which was extraordinarily problematic. It also, the bill I voted against, uh, did not allow for any liability protection so that if something were to go wrong, if a nurse practitioner uh, were to engage in medical misconduct, there was nothing in that bill uh, to hold those uh, medical agents accountable or responsible. That goes way too far. I, I don't think that Washington state taxpayers should fund uh, out-of-state abortions. I think that's an extraordinarily radical position, and I don't think it's in keeping with the, the voters of Washington state or the majority of people in the 42nd district. And I think we, we need to make sure that we uh, are supporting uh, women. We need to make sure that we are uh, funding programs that work. And I think the goal for, for both sides should be uh, to reduce the number of abortions that are occurring in Washington state. Sharon Shoemake. Just to be clear, when the governor proposed sanctuary for women coming here to Washington State, they were not suggesting that Washington State pay for their abortions. They were saying that Washington State law enforcement should not work with law enforcement from other states to prosecute those women and come up with a case against them. This does not take money to do. 
In fact, Simon Sev's exposition would cost more money because it would use our law enforcement to prosecute women for private decisions made between them and their doctors. I do support, I am pro-choice. I believe that politicians in Olympia do not know what to do with a woman's body more than a woman and her doctor do. I think this is a basic human right and we need to ensure that we are protecting the will of the voters and the ability of women to get health care. This is crucially important. Every single year, Republicans introduce bills to ban or restrict abortion in this state. Simon Sevcik has will not give you a clear answer about whether he is pro-life or pro-choice. He does talk to his donors about it. We, I'm glad that we now can say Simon Sevzik is pro-life and will restrict our right to choose. I believe that if you are truly pro-life, then what we want to do is figure out ways to restrict abortion. We want to have paid family, not restrict abortion, sorry, um, make it unnecessary to have abortion. We want to have paid family and medical leave. We want to have wraparound services, and we want to have early learning so women can make sure that their children have all the resources they need to go forward and thrive. Okay, we move on now to Alicia Rule. You have the same question. I trust women implicitly to make the decisions they need to make for their own health care, even when they're really hard. Tasha, same question. Obviously, this is a very uh, emotional decision for, uh, and, uh, for many people. Uh, as a police officer, I have upheld the law uh, of the people even when I sometimes don't agree with it because that is the law and that was my job. And the will of the people through the initiative process has been very clear on this particular issue. As I have said the entire time, if you're going to be pro-choice, we need to fund those other choices, and that is the adoption process. It is very difficult <laughs> and expensive in this state. And to the point that Sharon made about law enforcement and interfering in women's choices. This was asked of me because it's very clear that they don't understand what law enforcement does and doesn't do. If another state asks for assistance in an investigation through the search warrant process, it isn't up to the police officer to make that decision. It has to go through the county prosecutor who has to again get a, a warrant that is valid in this state. It is not an individual attack on police officers. Again, that just shows a lack of knowledge of what police officers can and cannot do, and it puts uh, decisions on us that are not actually true and gives us a bad rap. So I don't appreciate that, because it would have to go to Eric Ritchie to get a search warrant if there was some other state asking for assistance on that. We already do stuff like that. We don't assist our Border Patrol agents with things because of what the state is, and I've always abided by those laws. Again, sometimes I don't agree with the laws. Those are not personal decisions, but I have always upheld the laws of the state of Washington, and I will continue to do so. Dan Johnson, same question. Okay. Thank you. 1970 and then again in 1991, citizen initiatives uh, passed that in Washington state and legalized it. 
And as a legislator, I would support the will of the people through the initiative process, just like I would support the initiative process when it came through for gay marriage and legalizing marijuana. It's a, it's a voice of the people, and it was an initiative process. And with that being said, I believe the second part of that question was taxpayer funding, um, or I'm sorry, for out-of-state folks. In 1971, I did some research on this, and in 1971, when that uh, first initiative was put into law, it was actually also put in there that said uh, somebody getting an abortion in this state would have to be a resident for at least 30 days, and so that would be something that I'd be interested in upholding as well, because that would prevent uh, some folks coming in from out of state and then our taxpayer dollars having to go to that as well. I will tell you what I absolutely will not support is when somebody says uh, that they are 100% all on board with everything that is up to and including pro-choice and everything that that entails. What that tells me is that person is also saying that they are okay with partial birth abortions right up to the moment of, of birth that that's gonna be okay. And that to me is extreme and I can't sign off on that and I won't sign off on that. Not to mention, if somebody is having to go through that and knowing that in this state, a 13 year old girl without her parental consent can go in and go through that procedure on her own at a time when they need their family the most, I can't support that either. That's a time when you need your family by your side. And I think that that is currently something that exists, and I think that's something where we need to remedy that. Thanks. Um, yeah, you know, this is, I think part of the question was, is this a state issue? This absolutely is a state issue. Uh, in light of the Supreme Court's decision around Roe v. Wade, this is a state issue now more than ever. I do, uh, I, I, am, I do support the woman's right to choose. It's something that I uh, will, will stand by in terms of my votes in Olympia. I think that women and not politicians should be making decisions when it comes to this issue, so I'm supportive of that. Thank you all. Thank you all for answering the questions that we have posed and the forum has put together. Um, Mr. Uncles, the timekeeper, we are going to move to three minutes on a rebuttal. We're going to give you an extra minute because we're running a little bit long, so you have more to say. Feel free to take up to three minutes on this um, for each one of you. And I'm going to start sharing with you. This is a closing statement. You get to say anything to anybody you wish. Thank you. Um, thank you all so much for being here, and I want to thank all the candidates for joining me as well. I also want to talk a little bit about honesty. I think you should expect your leaders to be honest, tell you what they believe, and say the same things in Linden as you do in Bellingham. I've said things that the majority of the people in this room booed me for, and that took courage. It took courage to show up to a group of people where it was uh, Two years ago, it was found that the Republican Party paid for some of this event. That isn't an easy thing for a Democrat to do, and I want to thank all the people that showed up and were uh, polite here. So when Simon was fact-checked in the Salish Current, one out of his five statements was shown to be true. Every single one of my statements was true. 
When Cascadia Daily News endorsed me, they said, I leave no chance for, for confusion where I stand on women, women's reproductive rights. What they said about Simon is that he repeatedly evaded questions regarding his own policies, positions, and his own political philosophy, turning most of his attacks, turning most into attacks on the record of his opponent while injecting his admiration for Abraham Lincoln countless times. I think I also want to talk about my stances, things that, um, sorry, <laughs> I heard a story about a voter who asked Simon at the doors about where he stood on January 6th. If you look at where Simon was during that time, he was interning in the White House from 2020 to 2021. I don't know if he was there on January 6th or not, but what he told this voter was he didn't know about national politics. He didn't have an opinion. Do you believe that? Um, one of the things that Simon has also said is he said that our state is last in mathematics. I've asked numerous education policy research and they've said that that is not true. We are typically, if you look at where we are in national uh, report cards, we are typically at or above average in our public schools. <laughs> Finally, the last thing that Simon lied about is he had all our local police chiefs at a campaign rally but he told them it wasn't a campaign rally, despite the fact that it was advertised on his website and his campaign staff emailed the invitation. I don't think that we should be using public officials as props. I think that we should always make sure that we're talking to people as a researcher, as a teacher, and that makes me so mad as a voter when people don't tell me the truth. Senator Sefcik. Here's what makes me mad. When, when I drive in downtown Bellingham and I see people that are only a few years older than me that are killing themselves from fentanyl. Here's what makes me mad. When I see law enforcement officers that are quitting the job because of the policies that Representative Shoemake voted for. What makes me mad is hearing every single day from senior citizens that are getting price out of their homes. What makes me mad is hearing from people like you that are wondering about the ability of your children and your grandchildren to be able to grow up and live in a county that all of us love. That's what makes me frustrated. My enemy is not Representative Shoemake, though we do have plenty of differences when it comes to our voting record. You know, I, we could talk all day about the Salish Current and the fact-checking job that they did. You know, we could talk about the promise that Representative Shoemake made to all of you that you wouldn't vote for an income tax and the fact that a PhD in economics can't explain the difference between an income tax and the capital gains income tax that she voted for. We could talk about all those things. Uh, we could talk about, I was at Camp David the day that that happened. I mean, but, but ultimately I know folks, you're not here to listen to those sorts of things. You're here because you believe in returning affordability and restoring public safety and rebuilding accountability in a government that lacks it. I was proud to have police chiefs come and share their concerns. That's why every single law enforcement organization has endorsed me, not you. That's why I'd encourage, none of you have to take my word for it. You don't have to take my word for it. Go and talk to your local police chiefs about whether Representative Shoemake listened to them in the hour of maximum need. Go and talk to your local law enforcement officers that every single day see the travesty going on in downtown Bellingham. You don't have to take my word for it. You don't have to take my word on these things because the people that you trust, trust me to represent you and fight for you down in Olympia. That's what I'm committed to doing. G.K. Chesterton once said, 
fallacies do not cease to be fallacies because they've become fashions. Well, there's a lot of very unfashionable fallacies going around right now, and there's a lot of ones that Representative Shoemake has spread. But ultimately, the bottom line is this. You do deserve an elected official who will tell you the truth, who will tell you the truth even when it is inconvenient. That's what I want to be able to do. I'm not going to promise that you and I will always agree on all things, but I will promise you this. I will work with you. I will listen to you. I will learn from you. Getting to represent you already has been the greatest honor of a lifetime. And I want to be able to do it because I want to make sure that your kids and your grandkids can grow up in a Whatcom County that is safe, that is healthy, and that is affordable. I fear that that dream is slipping further and further away out of touch. We can talk all day, we can use all sorts of rhetoric, but you have to separate the rhetoric from the record. I'm not going to apologize for calling Representative Shoemake out when I feel her voting record does not comport with all of you. And again, I think the fact that we've still seen an unwillingness to own up to the fact that you voted for an unconstitutional income tax. You can be in favor of an income tax, but just come out and say it. But don't tell the people you're not going to vote for it, and a few months later, go around and vote for it. That's not what all of you came here to see. You want change Senator, in Olympia, and that's why I'm running. Thank you all. First up is Tasha, Tasha Dykstra-Thompson is first up. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming out, uh, staying engaged in the political system. This is what we need, is our communities to be engaged and to support us, come around us. It's going to take all of you to help whoever ends on these tables end up in Olympia to uh, get it right for you guys, because that's what we're required to do. So why am I running? Um, I was a cop for 25 years here in the city of Bellingham. Uh, public service is what I've always been about. and. Uh, not only did I do it well, I did it exceptionally well. Uh, I have several, several um, commendations for the type of work I did, the calls that I did, and in all of them they often described me as t tenacious, thorough, and a team player. And that's what I'm going to bring down to Olympia. I've walked into uh, situations where they started out screaming the most horrific names at me but I was able to talk them down and work through it and find out what their true need was and give them the service that they needed. And that's what I will do for the rest of, for all of you in this room in Olympia. I know that when I go into Olympia as a police officer, they're not well liked down there. This is why we have all the laws, but I'm willing to walk into that room because we need a, a law enforcement voice at the table. The last two years, law enforcement was kept away from the table. They were kept out of the room and the laws that were, were passed have been impacting all of your safety for a very long time. I appreciate that Rep. Rule voted against those things, but her vote did not count enough because the, the things were still passed, the laws were still passed, and she didn't have the influence within her own party to make the changes that are necessary. And I worry that the next two years would be more of the same if we cannot have a voice such as mine down there uh, advocating for our law enforcement and getting public safety back on track. And this is why I'm supported by all the law enforcement in this, uh, in this community. And I will bring, be bringing that voice down to Olympia. Thank you. Alicia Rule. Thank you. It's been such an honor to serve you as a state legislator. It's not something that I had in my plans. Um, and I've really appreciated the opportunity to take your stories many of the times in your hardest days and be a voice for you in um, the rooms where decisions are made. I, I do want to correct the record that we have uh, law enforcement officers in the legislature right now. Um, and we also have 
many, I've had personally many meetings, some with Ms. Thompson uh, in our office. So I, th I think the, the issue is not understanding the issue. The issue is that you need to be able to get the support to get those laws passed. And I think I have built the trust and the relationships to be able to make influence there. And we see that because we see several bills in the second session that I was able to get passed that were fixes because we heard from our law enforcement. I met regularly with our local police chiefs. And I have the trust of both law enforcement and mental health professionals. And that's something that's pretty unique, as you can imagine, in these political times. To have um, really one of the things I love to do is bring unlikely parties together and to be able to talk about difficult things and come out of those meetings with the kind of policy that works well, that's pragmatic, that's practical, and that serves you because that's what we're here to do. We're here to listen to you, hear your concerns, everybody in our community, and produce something that works for us as a whole. When it comes down to it, we are neighbors, we're friends, we're family, and we need to do a better job of serving you in a way that hits all of that for all of us together, not separate, not red and blue. So I am committed to supporting, continuing to support law enforcement. I think we have some big work to do, particularly around what we're gonna do about substance use disorder um, that we see as uh, a real near issue, but also that we're looking at building out these other systems. And I just wanna remind folks that we also have lots of other things that we need to legislate on. Um, our education system is extremely important. We've gotta do all of these things at the same time. We don't have the luxury of picking one side or the other and holding tightly, so, so tightly, that we don't have anything to show for it when we get home because we just stuck our feet in the ground and said, I'm not gonna give on anything. When we do that, we fail our people, we fail our kids, we fail our grandparents, and I'm not willing to do that. So I'll continue to stand by my bipartisan record. I'll continue um, to work on behalf of you with both business support and labor support, labor union support, with both um, police and mental health and the sole endorsement of our firefighters, as well as many other organizations, because they have trusted, because they've worked with me, that I will do the right thing for the right thing's sake. Thank you. And now that we'll move on to your family members at the next table, and we'll start with Joe Timmons. Thank you, Ken, and thank you all uh, for the invitation to be here. As I said, I think these conversations are important in helping uh, voters make decisions about the people that they're electing to represent them. I am a first-time candidate, so I'm going to talk just a little bit about myself and a little bit more about why I'm running. Uh, I grew up in a working-class household here in Washington State. My dad's a pipe fitter, and my folks created a small business out of our garage when I was four year, uh, five years old. So I really learned the value of hard work that way. It's all right. <laughs> I learned the value of hard work that way, uh, and 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 I and the need to treat each other with with uh, with respect. And I've applied that to a career in public service. I've spent the last decade working at the local, state, and federal levels of government. Um, previously, before I got into this 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 world, I uh, worked at a my first job was at a car wash. I've worked. I've been a preschool teacher. I've worked in retail at restaurants. I say that to say, um, you know, I, I really do come from a working class background, and that's the lens that I look through, I will look through in the lens if given the chance to serve in Olympia. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm, that's not why I'm running. I'm running because I love Whatcom County. I'm running because I want to serve my community. 
Uh, as has been said, I know sometimes there are differences in the best way to serve our community, but one thing I love about Whatcom County is that people can still sit down and talk. I, I think that we need more of that in our, in our civic discourse, frankly. I think we need more of that in our government. Uh, I know it's divisive times right now, but I think that we do have more in common than divides us. Uh, I have a track record of doing that. I do currently work in the governor's office. I've, I've worked in the governor's office as our Northwest Washington regional representative uh, for the last four years. That means our boots on the ground for this, this part of the state. And you know, as the governor and the secretary of health were making some very difficult decisions during the pandemic, um, I had relationships with, with Republican mayors that could pick up the phone, give me a call, know that they'd get a straight answer as to why those things were being implemented and how they could be implemented in a way that's gonna serve their community so they can follow the, follow the law. Um, I, I, liked, I, I view myself as a listen first leader and then I, I would relay those concerns to our office as well. Uh, I, I have a track record of bringing resources from Olympia back to Whatcom County. In the governor's office, I helped establish the Small Business Border Relief Fund. This is a grant program um, that more than 100 uh, businesses and organizations in Whatcom County utilized because they were uniquely impacted by the prolonged uh, border closure with Canada. When I worked at West, I previously worked at Western Washington University in government relations where I advocated on behalf of the university and the students in Olympia. And I have a track record of bringing capital funding to this community uh, that not only met growing student needs on campus, but also helped stimulate the local economy. So I really hope to have the opportunity to serve this community in Olympia. Um, I think everybody deserves to feel safe in our community. I think everybody deserves clean air to breathe and clean water to drink. I think all kids deserve access to a great job and a great career. Uh, that doesn't mean they, through a, as has, we've talked about, not necessarily through a path of a four-year education. So I fully uh, support that. I, I thank everyone for their time and the invitation to be here. Dan Johnson, you have three minutes. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for coming out here this evening uh, to join us in this forum. Uh, 1992 is when I graduated from the halls of Meridian, so it's nice to be back here on campus. And little did I know, and little did my teachers know, that I would be standing here in this very campus running for state office. I'm pretty sure there were some bets made. I stand before you today as a, as a man that's lived in this community since he was uh, six years old. That goes back to 1980. And again, I went to, went to Meridian, as did my children, who are now 21 and 27, went to Meridian. Uh, I've got a track record of helping my neighbors locally growing up. And recently, as recent as the floods in Sumas, when my whole family and all of our resources, along with many other in our community, went up there to help our friends and neighbors in their time of need. My campaign slogan says, right there with you. And that's exactly how I view myself in the community in Whatcom County, is that I am right there with you. In this community, I have owned my business, I have raised my family, I've been married, I have been successful, and that is part of the community, or partly due to the community, I should say, but also I've given back to the community. As a professionally trained auctioneer, I've helped with many nonprofits locally by donating my time and services as that very unique skill set as an auctioneer. Glad to do it. I still do it to this day. In fact, 
I do it for the Meridian Boosters to help this very same school district that I'm an alum of. I enjoy being part of the community and one of my philosophies when I was in business in this community was as a business owner, not just taking from the community, you know, from the, the goods and services that you sell, but giving back. Another way that we gave back in my business was when a produce truck, for example, would go over on the interstate and not all of it was available for retail in the stores, we would call the local food banks and we would make sure that that food, which was still good food, was given out to the local community even when the insurance companies said it's not good enough to sell anymore. And we made sure that that food didn't go to waste and that it helped in our community. I will take that resourcefulness, that ingenuity, that out-of-the-box thinking to Olympia when I re represent Whatcom County in the 42nd, right there with you, because I am one of you. I've been one of you since 1980, and I will continue to be for the rest of my days. Thank you. So I, I just want to take a moment to get a mic that really works. <laughs> just like to take a moment to say thank you. Uh, first of all, uh, Sharon, Alicia, Joe, this was hard, I know. Not necessarily friendly territory for you, but thank you for joining us. This would have been nothing without you. We appreciate the sacrifice you made, and we understand the difficulty it was um, for you, and we understand uh, the environment that you're in. The rest of you, thank you for being here. We hope you, were you felt fairly treated. We hope you got enough time to say your message. Um, for those of you in the audience, um, it is time to help us give back to Common Threads. You are all dismissed as we bring up um, Julie Anderson, so you're going to be next. But we're going to ask you all to help contribute to this effort. Common Threads does incur cost when it comes to this. For those of you that are leaving or have already left, I took note. So as you're listening to this on the radio, we would uh, please ask you to contribute to this, com this effort tonight while you're sitting here. And please contribute, if you're listening online, to Common Threads for this forum. You don't get this kind of forum everywhere. And again, thanks to all the candidates for your time. And then Julie. I also want to let everybody know that Congressman Rick Larson will be here and debating Dan Matthews. <clears throat> so stick around. Once again, we're in a bit of an intermission here. So Julie Anderson is a nonpartisan candidate for the Secretary of State. Her opponent is not here, so she's going to take five minutes to issue a statement. I have not met you. Nice to meet you. My name is Ken Bell. I'm a sports commissioner. The floor is yours. Thank you. Well, I can't tell if people are running away because they don't want to give to the donation can 
or if they just think that the Secretary of State is too boring. My name is Julie Anderson, and I am running as the nonpartisan candidate for Secretary of State. And we'll talk about nonpartisanship in just a minute. I am also the woman who's running with the resume. I'm the woman that has nearly 13 years of professional experience conducting hundreds of elections in Pierce County down in the south. I've recorded and preserved and made accessible to the public millions of public records. I'm nationally and state certified as an election administrator. I'm also certified as a public records officer. Before I did all of that, I served on the Tacoma City Council, another nonpartisan role, and uh, had a career that was kind of eclectic, working in the nonprofit and the public sectors in human services, criminal justice, and economic development. In other words, I didn't grow up wanting to be a county auditor. Who does? But I have learned to really love the work in 12 years. I love the customer service, the precision, and the duty of holding elections and public records in your trust. I'm running for, uh, I'm running for Secretary of State to do some pretty obvious things. I want to increase access to elections. I want to increase security and transparency in elections. And I want to give you a couple of practical examples of how I want to do that. And please visit my website, julieanderson.org. I've got lots of written detail on there. But here's two examples. Increasing access to democracy. In Pierce County, I have an agreement with three of my, all three of my library districts, which means that on election day, I have 27 public library branches open until 8 p.m., providing direct voter services as extensions of my office. In Pierce County, it saves our voters an average of 14 miles of driving if they're having an election day emergency. The dog ate the ballot, they can't find the ballot, if they can't remember if they're registered, they can get all of those things taken care of at a public library. Now, if we scaled that up and out through Washington State, guess for me, how many, how many in-person service um, centers would we have on election day? Three and a half. <laughs> 300. Up to 300 places that voters it could get help in their own communities with elections. Here's another example in terms of um, increasing uh, election security. I think, if you, I think you probably know that every single county after election day has a random batch audit of ballots. That and uh, the, both political parties are involved in that. The two political parties have to agree on what race they want to see audited. And then with a random roll of the dice or a cut of the cards, they decide what batches of ballots are going to be hand counted and compared to a machine count to make sure the machines are act, uh, working properly. So that's happening in every county already. But what's missing is a, what, a single statewide audit 
involving all 39 counties at once on a statewide race using a statistically valid sample. So that's what I want to do, institute a risk-limiting audit statewide. I've got other examples as well. I, I hope that I'm able to convey my enthusiasm for the work. I know that I love the work because I've been doing it for 12 years, and I want to bring this respect for community and this enthusiasm to the Secretary of State's office. It has been a real pleasure in the back listening to the questions that you had and listening to the dilemmas that your community faces. I trust voters, and I respect community, and I think that's what democracy is all about. Um, Nonpartisanship, very quickly. People always know to know what flavor is she really? I really am nonpartisan. I have been um, unaffiliated with a political party since I began my career and have um, been nonpartisan as the Pierce County Auditor. My voters uh, down south made the position nonpartisan because I think they instinctively understood that the person that is managing the election shouldn't belong to one of the teams. I'm running as a nonpartisan for Secretary of State, and this has never been done before, because I don't think that the umpire who is at home plate calling balls and strikes should be wearing a team jersey. When I give this talk to third graders, they get it, right? It also means that I am not soliciting or accepting any endorsements from any political party. It also means that I am accepting no money from any political party. My opponent, well over $200,000. So I'm bringing experience, passion, respect for community, and completely unencumbered by any partisan strings. And I thank you for your time. I'm gonna, happy to engage you out in the hallway um, and maybe after you've put a couple of um, more bucks in the donation bucket. Thank you. Okay, we're going to invite Representative Larson and Dan Matthews to the stage. And again, remind our listening audience that this is a debate sponsored by Common Threads Northwest. We are at Meridian High School. The moderators are Joe Tian and myself, Ken Bell, Port Commissioner. And I believe Joe is going to start the show. Yeah, so our format here is um, each candidate will have three minutes to answer the initial question, a response for two minutes, the other candidate will have a response for two minutes, and then a rebuttal by the original answerer for one minute. And so we'll begin and first of all, thanks to our candidates for federal office coming here to our community. I think that's really super important to hear from these candidates. So one of my prized possessions in my whole world is uh, a picture of my dad with JFK when he was running for president in 1960. And he came to our little town in the Midwest and uh, campaigned as he campaigned in the primary that year. And so, uh, but. Our first question, this is for Dan Matthews, and these are our two candidates. Uh, 
Rick Larson and Dan Matthews. And uh, Dan, uh, many people say that uh, there is a crisis at our southern border, including waves of immigrants, illegal drugs, criminal activity. Do you believe there's a crisis at our southern border? And what can the federal government do to control the southern border? America. I think it's working. Is it? I, I, okay. That's, that's, I got it. Stereo. <laughs> Try that one. Try Rick's. I'm surrounded. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> it was working. <laughs> and I'm a pilot. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so we'll get right to the, uh, right to the issue of the borders. We absolutely have a crisis at the borders, and everyone here knows that. Um, and out there in, in the, uh, in the uh, radio world, <sighs> our borders are not secure, and they could be. Right now, uh, since President Biden took office, we have more than 4 million people who have entered this country illegally. Every year, we allow 1 million people into this country illegally. We accommodate them, we bring them in, we welcome them with open arms because after all, all pretty much all of our ancestors came that way as, as well. Give me your tired, your, your poor, your wretched masses yearning to be free, inscribed on the Statue of Liberty. We want people to come here legally. Our borders are not secure and it is a national security nightmare and threat to all of us. We have got to secure the borders. We have fentanyl coming across the borders at the rate each week enough to kill the entire U.S. population. That's a threat to America, and it's manufactured in China. That should be accounted for, and that should be interdicted right away. Without question, without partisanship, we have to stop it. The cartels are gaining ground every day. They have drones flying over our, our border guards. They're outmanned and outgunned. That's unconscionable. The human trafficking epidemic at the borders has got to be stopped. Jan and I have been involved with this for more than a dozen years, and I've got to tell you, it's a nightmare. Kids being sold for six to $8,000. Ghost children, they have no birth date. When they're, when they're got by the border control, per patrol, they give them a date of January 1st for their birthday because they don't have papers, they don't have identities. Ghost children that disappear into the night and they're never seen again. Human trafficking is a scourge on humanity, and we have got to stop it. All of this, the crime coming across the borders, and, and when we have sanctuary cities and sanctuary states, it gives aid and comfort to the enemy. It's got to stop, because those cartels and those gang members come throughout the country. They round up the people that they're after. They're having free reign in our country, because we don't have the boldness, the decency, the humanity to stop this. We could do this. We need big, big walls and really big gates to allow people to come in free into our country and join our citizenship as a country. This means what, 10 minutes or 10, 10 seconds? 30 seconds, thank you. I just hope that we can uh, agree that this is a nightmare that can be solved if we have the willingness to do it. If we can have 87,000 IRS agents hired, we could have half of that on the border. 
That's more important to me that because the compliance rate in America for paying taxes is over 80, 88%, the highest in the free world. In foreign countries that are nightmares, uh, it's 100%, and you know why. So we've got to address this, this nightmare, this existential threat to America right away. Agree in a bipartisan way to attack it right now and stop this. All right, Rick, you have two, two minutes. Thanks. Um, first off, thanks for the chance to uh, be here and to address you tonight. Uh, my name is Rick Larson. Uh, I'm running for Congress here in the 2nd Congressional District, and uh, I'd like your support and, and your vote when the ballots come out in a couple of weeks. To address border security means uh, to take a comprehensive view of the border. It means taking a comprehensive view of immigration along with border security. These two cannot stand alone, and they should not stand alone. We need a, uh, a secure border um, at the international border with Mexico. That does mean increasing the number of Border Patrol, Customs Border Protection folks who are there. Uh, but I will say a wall is not a great investment. It's a, va a very poor investment. What we do need is the um, infusion of the use of technologies like aerial drones, uh, like sensors, that can multiply the work of the women and men who work at our border. Uh, we also need to uh, address the issues in Central America. We're talking about three countries, uh, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, with the highest murder rates in the Western Hemisphere. People are fleeing that country and taking a chance on coming to the United States. So the investment that we do need to make in, in terms of helping these countries develop options so people can stay, that means helping these countries fight the cartels in their own countries. It means helping these countries develop their own economies so that people don't leave, uh, leave those countries. And, and come to the United States. But it also means comprehensive immigration reform, recognizing that there are a lot of folks in, in the United States who are paying taxes, contributing to their communities, volunteering in the communities, attending church in our communities, who are doing a great job in our communities and ensuring that they have a legal pathway to a legal permanent residency, including citizenship here in the United States. A comprehensive approach is the best approach for our country. Thank you. Dan, you have one minute to, to, for, for a rebuttal. Well, the simple answer is this. After 22 years, Mr. Larson, why haven't we done anything about this? Uh, we need to do it now. I'm a pilot by profession. I have more than 24,000 flight hours. People have entrusted their lives to my decisions. And the decisions that we are making up here and in Washington, D.C. matter. We need to do this, kind of, we need to decide to take care of this now. It's a human tragedy, this isn't a policy tragedy, it's a human, we're talking about people. At the borders, the, the citizens who live along the borders, the, the border states, all of this has to be addressed in a national way, with national agreement. This is important to all of us, and we know it. So let's come together as one. The division in our society and in Washington, D.C. has got to stop. Polarization solves nothing but just get us at the other end of the table and agree to disagree and be disagreeable. Well, we can be agreeable. We can find common ground. If one thing about that border, like human trafficking, scares us all is of concern, then let's attack it. Let's attack all of those issues and come to the conclusion that we can do this.
All right, this question, uh, we start with Rick Larson. Price of oil and gasoline, very high. What can and should Congress do to bring down prices at the pump? Thank you very much for the question. I uh, appreciate the chance to answer that. And to, to remind people who's answering, to the folks on the radio world, this is Rick Larson, and I'd ask for your support as well. So the prices at the pump are prices I'm paying too. Uh, my family's paying too. I feel it as much as anyone else uh, who's listening to us tonight. And what we uh, can point to specifically is, first off, is Putin's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. When you look at the gas prices on February 22nd and then look at the gas prices on February 23rd, the graph shows a clear spike because oil and gas are global commodities. It is very hard to control the price of oil and gas unless you're a socialist. And so what I, uh, what I supported is what the president did by releasing from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve additional oil so that it could alleviate the rising price of gas. And we saw the gas prices coming down all year until about two weeks ago here. When two weeks ago there was both a fire and maintenance brought down refineries on the West Coast. So when we saw these pr price spikes in the last two weeks here in, on the West Coast, we didn't see them in, in the Midwest or in, uh, in, on the East Coast because of the, um, the, the, um, the pipelines in the, on the West Coast are not connected to the ones of the East Coast. So investing in a broader uh, oil and gas distribution system is going to be important. But let's not fool ourselves when you look at the U.S. being a net energy exporter because global prices draw oil and gas to where it's, gonna, uh, where it's going to be um, paid for. So we're exporting oil, we're exporting natural gas out of this country, and we're not gonna defeat a global marketplace. If you want a global, if you support the market, which I think most people do, then we're going to have to continually deal with the vagaries that happen in the global market. So uh, releasing the oil out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was an important step. But long term, we need to invest in an energy system in our country that decreases dependence on foreign sources of energy and on oil and gas. And that means investing in a more broad-based energy system uh, that uh, um, includes electricity. And, and electrifying the economy will go a long way towards weaning ourselves off of this global marketplace that is wreaking havoc in our economy today. Dan, you have two minutes. Dan Matthews. Two minutes, okay. Uh, I'm going to quote the president. Come on, man. Uh, the first cause, on day one, our president decreased our reliance on our own energy. He cut off the pipeline. 11,000 people went out of their jobs in 30 days. You can't blame that on Putin. You can't blame that on, on China or anywhere else. The buck stops here, Mr. Biden. The buck stops with the Democrat Party deciding to bring us to our knees economically in an energy-reliant fashion so that we are dependent on someone else. 
you create a crisis and then you come in and you say you're going to solve it. It's like a, the arsonist coming in, setting a fire and saying, I'm going to solve your problem. Uh, here's a fire extinguisher and the fire extinguisher has gas in it. Folks, we have to realize that the problems are being started and caused by Washington, D.C. It's not incompetence, it's intentional. They want to bring us to our knees so that we will switch to green energy that is not possible to look at California. All the electric cars can't be supported by the electric grid and they're having brownouts all the time and it's gonna expand around the country because one party has decided that green energy in some uh, utopian fantasy is gonna solve all our issues and so will cut off the reliance that we had on our own energy. The Bakken and Williston range in the central part of the US, folks, has 2,400 years of natural gas in it, enough to supply our energy needs for at least my lifetime. And I just, I just wanna wonder, what is the purpose? Why would anyone, why would any party do something so uh, obtuse, I, I can't even describe it, it's insane, to do something like this, to cut us off from day one and, and responding to an extreme part of their party, I'll, I'll attribute it to insanity, but we have got to stop this kind of thing and realize that there is an answer, and the answer is with us, not with Mr. Putin. You have a minute. So I think um, in rebuttal, I'll just note that apparently when it comes to borders that we should get along, but when it comes to energy, my opponent, um, doesn't want to come to any sort of resolution and work together, uh, which is uh, perfectly all right, um, but uh, let's be consistent on how we can continue to try to work together to find solutions. Uh, and I'll just leave it at that. Thanks. Okay, so now, welcome. This is your first time with me, so enjoy it. So infl inflation is at a 40-year uh, high. So we're going to hit all the hot-button issues today, gas and inflation. Inflation's at a 40-year high. And we've seen nothing but an increase in uh, federal spending. Is that desirable in this context? And do you think that the increase in spending is having an impact on inflation? Is it my turn? And the first one goes to Dan. Okay, I'm up to bat. So are the Mariners. They didn't do so. Oh, well, yeah. Okay. Uh, you don't pitch to <laughs> certain people. Okay, I'm, I'm going to cite uh, a uh, Nobel Prize economist and say that inflation is caused by government spending, period. Any question about that? All right. That's, that's a simple formula to understand. Milton Friedman said that because he knew that when government spends, it causes inflation. Ten years ago when we, I ran against Mr. Larson, the, uh, the national debt was just at $16 trillion. Today it's at $31 trillion and running toward 32. Incredible. However, it's in the last 21 months that it jumped $7 trillion. We are spending and mortgaging our children's future. What kind of America, what kind of a future do we want to give our children? 
we're using our credit card and running up the debt and saying, tough kids, uh, we got to pay for uh, college tuition and we got to pay for the government spending is going to cripple us. Big government is not the answer to all our problems. Big citizens are. And what we need is to stop spending, stop inflating the dollar. Uh, we, are, we are headed toward an economic crisis. We are in a recession now and everybody knows it. You know it at the pump. You know, you know it at the cost of food. And this is really, really serious for those with low income. Those people know that they're barely making it to the end of the week, let alone the end of the month. We have to come together and realize that economic impacts are people impacts again. All of this is about people. We get trapped up and caught up in esoteric policy issues and all that, and we forget that it's people. Moms and dads with their kids crying because they just don't have anything more than a little peanut butter left. This doesn't happen on Capitol Hill where power and money circulates and, and they solve all their issues by going out to dinner. This has to solve with us realizing whether, whether it's a border issue or fuel issues or the economy, that inflation is a crippling, crippling thing that can stop when we stop spending money like we're a drunken congressman. Oops. Well, that's, that is the solution that I would have, that I would address. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm running for Congress, in case you didn't know, read below. But uh, I, I just want to say that, uh, Mr. Larson, I don't hate you. I don't hate the Democrat Party. I hate policies that cripple the American public, that cripple our country, and that set us back on roads that we shouldn't be going down, whether it's economic policies or social policies or virtue signaling or whatever. We have to start acting like we understand that this is an adult environment, that we have real issues, human issues, that affect us every day. And we have to come together as a people to realize that as one, as neighbors, we can solve issues. And separate and attacking each other will do nothing but fall farther and farther apart. Congressman Larson. Yeah. Some, of my, uh, some of my best friends in Congress are Republicans. And uh, the only people I uh, have dinner with to solve issues uh, are is my wife. So, uh, um, uh, yeah, you're welcome. So thanks so much for the opportunity to talk about this. Let's not forget that uh, we're just coming out of a pandemic. That a little over two years ago, this economy was racked by a, a pandemic that killed hundreds of thousands of Americans that put hundreds of thousands of people out of work. And the actions that we took in uh, 2020 uh, and 2021 helped move the economy from a deep recession, from high unemployment, uh, to an eco economy that is now on the move instead of on the mend. The downside to that is uh, inflation. And that's the question that's been asked about inflation. When you look at what causes inflation, it's an imbalance between supply and demand of a lot of things. The pandemic put a squeeze on supply chains throughout the world, and we are part of a world economy. That put a squeeze on the availability of consumer goods. We had trouble moving goods from the ship to shelves. And so we're, as part of the bipartisan infrastructure law, made an investment in port development to help us uh, um, sort of untie that squeeze at our ports. We uh, passed the CHIPS Act 
to bring domestic manufacturing back in the United States, domestic manufacturing of microchips. These are the chips that are necessary to not only build cars, but to run cars. We saw a shortage of that, a shortage of those during the pandemic as well. So now we're trying to solve that part of the problem. We released uh, oil out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to alleviate, uh, to, to alleviate costs at the pump. So there's a variety of things that contribute to inflation. The biggest tool that the United States has to battle inflation now is the work of the Federal Reserve. And you do not want 435 members of Congress acting as the board of the Federal Reserve. If you think Congress does a great job right now on the economy, you will love what they would do if they were in charge of interest rates. So we need to let the Fed do its job on interest rates while we solve these other issues that I've outlined. Okay, time. thank you. Dan, you have a one minute rebuttal. Wow, you don't want me to get started on the Federal Reserve. You only um, have a minute. Uh, one minute? You only have a minute. I only have one minute, okay. okay. Uh, this is called common threads, right? <laughs> okay. You have 50 seconds. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the clock's ticking. Uh, wow, where, where do I start? This, this is, uh, repeat the question, <laughs> please, seriously. You want me to restart the clock? Yeah, repeat the question. I know I have 20 seconds now, don't repeat the. Inflation is at a 40-year high. Does additional federal spending desirable under this context? I actually had lived a little no. bit. No. <laughs> no, additional federal spending. That's all we do. We try to spend ourselves out of debt, which is insane. Get your credit card out and pay for your bills with your credit card and what you got to have. More debt, more debt. That's the Inflation Reduction Act. What an incredibly dishonest title. You, you spend with your credit card to pay down on the debt and you say you're inflation reduction. This, is, this has got to stop. We have to start tightening our belts or we're not going to have pants to wear. We have to understand that this is, this is a crisis for all of us, all of us, young and old, but especially for the young who are expecting us not to mortgage or waste their future on our temporary convenience. Now, Whatever the cause, it stops Congressman at Washington, D.C. This next one is about military readiness and um, the role of Congress in that. Uh, do you think we are ready, and do you think the uh, Congress has a role to play in some of the recruiting shortfalls. So how do you feel we are with military readiness and do you think Congress has a role in recruiting for military shortfalls? Thanks for the, thanks for the question. Uh, yeah, with regards to military readiness, I don't think it's ever uh, wise or it's accurate to ever say we're 100% ready because we always need to work towards being 100% ready. That is what the Pentagon does. It's what the um, the services do, and it's as a member of the Armed Services Committee in Congress, uh, it's part of my job, along with Democrats and Republicans, to ensure that the Pentagon has the resources to be uh, ready militarily. We debate on the on the edges in the in the committee sometimes uh, amongst ourselves, uh, Democrats and Republicans, and sometimes across the aisle. Uh, between Democrats and Republicans, but we always, um, over the last 60 years, have passed a National Defense Authorization Act in a bipartisan way, and I'm really pl proud to be a part of that. 
But I think when you start looking at readiness, you need to first uh, look at what should our priorities be. And I think that China, uh, competing with China is the number one priority. Constraining Russia is next. Uh, constraining Iran and working with our allies and partners in the region is an uh, incredible priority. Uh, the uh, use of potential use of nuclear weapons by the uh, De Democratic People's Republic of Korea is the fourth. And then the continued fight against terrorists is fifth. These are the priorities of the Pentagon and have been for the last six to seven years. And you have to fund ba fund um, the budget based on, on those issues. So. So what does that mean in terms of readiness? Well, it, it means ensuring that uh, we are investing as quickly and as heavily as our main competitors in cybersecurity and cyber effects. Uh, this is a critical part. I will tell you, most members of Congress, if they can't kick it and break their toe on it, they don't want to fund it. But in fact, the future battlefield is in cyber. It's in the zeros and ones of electronic warfare. And we need to do a better job of funding that. We need to invest in artificial intelligence and machine, and machine learning. These algorithmic tools that will um, help us make better decisions, make faster decisions, and keep us ahead of the competition. We need to invest in what we call long-range fires and other standoff capabilities. So we're not always putting people in the middle of the fight, but they can stand off from the fight before we have to put them in the middle of it. We need a submarine fleet that is uh, more robust than it is now, but we're investing in that as well because the undersea domain is a critical domain that we don't see, but we can't forget. And uh, also more agile and, uh, and smaller ships in our Navy fleet are gonna be a critical part of readiness in the future. Now you do all that and then you have to decide oh, how many people do you need. And um, uh, the re recruitment challenge in the military reflects the recruitment challenge that employers have right now. And we're trying to recruit, as an example, on pilots. We're competing with the commercial airline pilots and what they, what they make and pay in order to get a Navy pilot or to get an Air Force pilot. Or the largest Air Force in the military, in fact, is the Army. They fly more airplanes and have more pilots than the Air Force. And recruiting those folks, we're competing with commercial airlines. And so it's really about pay and it's about communicating the mission, the national security mission of the United States and trying to attract people uh, because they want to help fulfill that mission. <laughs> so, does Congress have a, what is Congress's role, and do you feel that we um, have a, a military readiness? And, and what is Congress's role in military readiness? That's what and, I thought. Yes. Okay. Great. Okay. My background. Um, I was in the, the United. Second part of that question. I was is, in the United States Air Force. For, for uh, 22 years, I retired as a lieutenant colonel. I flew in Vietnam in Desert Storm, and uh, I have uh, 24,000 flight hours because I was also a commercial airline pilot. I was a consultant to the Boeing company until recently, and uh, so my background is in aviation and is in the military. My son today, a pilot with Alaska Airlines, is also in the Air Force Reserves. In fact, the same unit that I was in at McCord, flying the C-17 now, the next generation. I know the military, I know the issues facing military people. The first thing about readiness is we pay them appropriately. It's unconscionable to me that 24% of the enlisted, thank you, 24% of the enlisted people in the military today qualify for food stamps. How dare we? Those young men and women have sacrificed their youth to serve their country. 
We need to get a step up and start requiring national service of all our young people after high school to realize that this country has an obligation that you must pay. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. That's the ethic that JFK offered us. If you said that today in a Democrat gathering, you'd be booed out of the room because it's, what can I uh, get from you today? Pay, pay for my college. The young people who are going into the military deserve our best. And that's what we, we don't need to teach them pronouns. We need to have military readiness. Congressman Larson. Oh, go ahead. No. Congressman Larson. Okay, thanks. Um, so uh, not in terms of a rebuttal at all, it's just uh, some further information that we need to, we do need to recruit. We need to recruit for today's military and for tomorrow's military. Um, what we, what we are focused on today is different than what we were focused on even 22 years ago uh, when I first came to Congress. But every year that I've been in Congress, we have increased military pay. Every year I've been in Congress, we have increased military pay. We also need to be sure that we are taking care of the women and men who have served. So most recently we passed the PACT Act. This is the bill that will help pay for the health care of women and men who served in Iraq and Afghanistan who are now sick from cancers and illnesses because of burn pits in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we passed that in July, and that'll go into effect very soon, because we also need to be taking care of the women and men who did serve so that we can tell women and men who want to serve that we will take care of them in the future. All right, we start now with Dan Matthews. The U.S. has given Ukraine tens of billions of dollars in direct military aid to contribute to its defense against Russian aggression. Do you support this aid, and would you increase it, decrease it, or alter the form of the aid in some way? When will it end? Uh, the, the, uh, somebody said money laundering. Uh, I, I can't really respond to that, but I can respond to this. We are the largest economic power in the world. Sanctions work. We have to have the will to take economic sanctions against any adversary, such as Russia, such as China, and all, all around the world to stop the conflicts that, that we don't need to get involved in. We have conflicts at home enough to fill up a, a boat, especially at the border. We need to take care of ourselves first and then the, the issues around the world. And I, I am fully engaged with going after economic sanctions to stop all of this madness that goes on, it's, it's about the economy, folks. It just is when, when uh, Putin and, and all his, his cronies try to do that, they're trying to gain more territory. And what are they after? They're after the food and the petroleum and all the resources of the Ukraine, which are monumental. I have Ukrainian friends, and they can't believe this because they regard themselves as brothers of their Russian neighbors. And it's, it's almost like a civil war, and we're getting involved in something way over our head. This does not have to be. But economic sanctions work, and we could exercise ourselves. We're in economic times right now that are perilous, folks. Last, uh, last month or last week, the Bank of England bailed out England because of economic duress. It's going to start pinballing around the world. Japan could not sell their bonds uh, three days ago because nobody's buying them. 
this kind of thing is going to keep happening around the world and so the economic duress is going to lead to military and other food and other shortages military actions that we don't need to get involved in we need to be the solution and not part of the problem that's my answer is economic sanctions work we don't need to be pumping more and more down a, down a hole that's going to eventually, as our president said, result in Armageddon, especially if he's at the helm. Rick? Thank you. This is uh, Rick Larson, and um, I can tell you that in talking with uh, members of parliament from other NATO countries, uh, Vladimir Putin would have loved that answer. He would have loved the answer that came out of my opponent's mouth. To be exactly clear, the U.S. has so far provided $17 billion in military aid to Ukraine. We have uh, provided additional billions of dollars in economic assistance and in humanitarian assistance. Here in Whatcom County, there are 200-plus Ukrainian refugees who are registered with the Refugee, Sur Refugee and Immigration Services Northwest, a nonprofit group. And I hope you're supporting these folks. I hope you're supporting these Ukrainian refugees that are coming to the United States in such a way that when this is over and Ukraine is free again because Putin has been kicked out, because the U.S. stood with our NATO allies to help Ukraine kick him out, that these Ukrainians who are here and living in our communities have an opportunity to return home to a free and democratic Ukraine. Dan Matthews, you have a minute to respond. Well, unfortunately, that is a definition right there of demagoguery, of taking an issue, turning it around, and making your, your opponent seem like he's part of the problem. We have to start talking real world here. I was involved in defending our country. When you hear somebody in your crew say they're shooting at us with an expletive in the front, you know that this is a real world. I understand Mr. Larson and his family have never been in the military, and I've got to tell you that it matters that my son is in the military, and I don't want to see the young blood of this country unnecessarily put on the block of countries that are literally at civil war. I'm not afraid of some military aid and, and some backing, but we have to stop with this escalating in, in international conflicts it continues to escalate. History tells us again and again this happens. Yes, we will honor our alliances, and NATO knows that we will honor, and Putin knows that we will honor, but we need to do this with sanity and resolve and, and not with the hat in our hands. Time. So we are down to the last question, and then we will go to some summary statements. So this one is about the uh, Snake River dams. Do you support the removal of one or more of the dams along the Snake River to help salmon runs? And if they're removed, how do you suggest we generate the electrical power to replace the, that generated by those dams? And I'm going to start with uh, Congressman Larson. Uh, thanks. Uh, short answer is no, I don't. So I don't need to answer the second part about replacing the power from the dams either. We do need to invest in salmon restoration, and we have a great opportunity to do that. As part of the bipartisan infrastructure law, we approved the first ever federal program to do culvert replacement and repair. 
that will help our state, our counties like Whatcom County, and cities and tribal governments identify those culverts that are blocking fish passage and replace those so those fish can get farther upstream, reproduce, and come out of those rivers. So one day we'll, as commercial anglers and uh, recreational anglers, we'll have more fish to catch. And if we do it right with Chinook, the orcas will have more orcas to eat, or more, uh, more uh, Chinook to eat as well. Uh, and so there are any number of other actions we can take on, on salmon habitat restoration in order to increase the populations. But no, I don't support the uh, removal of the Snake River dams. Dan? And uh, nobody who knows anything about hydroelectricity should ever uh, support such a move. Uh, hydroelectricity is a renewable resource, despite what somebody might try to sell you as some, sell you as some kind of woke reality. We've got to realize that, uh, as Thomas Jefferson said, we're not, we're not governed by the majority. We're governed by the majority of those who participate. And lately in American politics, we've had the boisterous few running our country or directing the flow of even a government in Congress. Uh, extreme people of extreme environmentalists or extreme social engineers or whatever dictating that we tear down dams or save the snail darter or whatever when human costs of that the cost of farming alone would be so disastrous that even the most uh, nitwit of governors in olympia currently realizes that this would be a bad move yet they advocate these kind of things because they're in response to extremists in the environmental and uh, extremes i guess it, this has got to stop. There's so many things that are wrong. Uh, I, I tried to list them. I have a checklist of things like pilots do, of all the things I'd like to address in Congress. And, and this didn't even make the top 10 because there are so many other pressing realities confronting us today. If you, if you want to attack the problems that are happening, you don't return to Congress the people who have got us in the mess we're currently in. Would you like a rebuttal or did you say enough? So I got a little dog in this hunt as a port commissioner here at the Port of Bellingham and just not sure the hatchery is on your radar screen, but boy, we'd love to see one. Welcome to the Port of Bellingham. You feel free to answer to that if you'd like. If not, we're going to go right to closing statements. He didn't want one. So with, the, with your closing statements, we're going to bump them to four minutes because we have radio time. So you both have four minutes. Let's see if you can fill it. And we're going to start with Congressman Larson. Well, thanks again. And uh, as a member of Congress, I know you don't want to listen to me for four minutes. And I am sorry, KGMI, but I cannot be responsible for your radio time. But having said that, oh, you, you know, I have a radio ad. You could play that three times. <laughs> so uh, thanks, thanks again for the opportunity to um, uh, address uh, you tonight here in the auditorium and uh, out there in Radio Land. Uh, I very much appreciate it. My name is Rick Larson, and I do ask for your support uh, in my race for reelection. A few things I, I just want to highlight for you is that. Uh, in Congress, we most recently passed a bill that will give Medicare finally the authority to negotiate lower drug prices for seniors. In addition to that, it will uh, eventually 
uh, will uh, um, be able to limit your out-of-pocket costs for your Medicare prescription drugs to only $2,000 annually. In addition to that, next year, copays for insulin for folks who are in the Medicare drug program will be limited to $35 a month. And we just passed that bill. Uh, it's now a law, and you'll begin to see that um, uh, go to work. We also just passed the PACT Act. I mentioned it earlier in this debate. The PACT Act is a piece of legislation that will help our veterans, the ones who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, who worked in the burn pits in Iraq and Afghanistan, where literally they were burning all sorts of things, uh, including crap, including chemicals, including anything else they could throw in these burn pits. And now those folks are facing illnesses and cancers that people 40 years and younger have never faced, some of them dying. And the idea of the PACT Act is to basically cut through the VA, the Veterans Affairs uh, rigmarole, and just get these folks the health care that they need. In addition to that, we also added uh, veterans from the Vietnam era who served in Laos, Cambodia, and Thailand to the Blue Water Navy's uh, Act. And I'm not going to explain a lot what that is, but those in the radio, in radio land listening, you know what that is, and we are uh, adding your compatriots to that bill so that they can get the help that they need as well. And finally, last November, the president signed into law the bipartisan infrastructure law, which is already going to work here in Washington state, creating jobs that pay well for the women and men who are reconstructing the infrastructure of our state, including uh, roads and bridges and highways, including investments in uh, new uh, bus transit, uh, including investment in water lines, uh, replacing water lines, and including a major investment in broadband to finally close the, close the digital divide that exists in rural areas and their access to getting um, quality broadband. And you'll see that bill going to work for you over the next several years. So with that, I want to really thank you for the opportunity to um, uh, speak to you tonight. I look forward to your support. The ballots will be out in a couple of weeks, and look for my name, Rick Larson, on that ballot, and uh, uh, ask for your vote. Thank you. Dan Matthews. Thank you, and thank you everyone for being here tonight. This is America, where we're involved in our culture, in our society. There are people around the world dying to get into this country, dying to get into this country because of what you're doing right here, exercising freedoms that they can only dream of. I've traveled the world in my career in the military and with the airlines, and I can tell you that we are the envy of the world, the shining city on a hill. And we're letting our city burn because we don't have the willpower to come together. The most amazing thing about America, the strength of America, is our diversity. How, how great it is that red and yellow, black, brown, and white, all are precious in God's sight. Every one of us. We're neighbors. We're friends. We're not racists. We're not semi-Nazis or anything like that. We're friends and neighbors that agree that we have problems and issues but just like on 9-11, remember the days after that, America was unified. We came together. Congress get, got in the steps of the Capitol building and sang, God bless America. We put all our differences aside and realized that some things are most important or more important than others. To me, I'm a man of faith. Faith, hope, and love drive me. Faith, hope, and love in God. Faith, hope, and love in my family, starting with my wife and my kids, my four kids, their four spouses, and our 12 great, wonderful grandchildren. Uh, I just have to tell you that that's what compels me to be here. Faith, hope, and love in my fellow man. Faith, hope, and love in the freedoms that we enjoy that I want to see protected. Faith, hope, and love in our future. 
What kind of America, what kind of a world do we want to see the next generation have because of our decisions for good or for bad? It's time that we step up, that we realize we cannot return to Congress or to any position of power, those people who have messed up, who have gotten us in the current condition we're in. It's time for new blood. It's time for new people to step up. I fought in Vietnam and in Desert Storm, and I remember just a couple weeks ago seeing a man 101 years old who was at Normandy, and just like him, I looked from his wheelchair. He took the microphone and he said, we did not fight for this. My buddies didn't die on, the, on those beaches for this. Where is our humanity when children are sacrificed for convenience? Where is our humanity when we say that government is going to sponsor something horrific as abortion because it, it's a right to choose? All right, you have the right to choose. Please, my God, choose life. We, we need to say that we, as a government, as a people, will sponsor adoption. There are more people out there who want to adopt kids than want to kill the kids. We could do this. I don't condemn those ladies. I would come alongside them. Evidence shows that in 82% of the time, when one person comes alongside, just one person comes alongside a young girl considering abortion, that she says, I'll choose life. And 84% of the time, if they see an ultrasound, they say, my God, that's a living being. I can't, I can't sacrifice my baby. That is humanity. Where is our humanity, folks? We can't make this a political football any longer. It's the ultimate exploitation of women to press abortion upon them and say, I support you. And then at the same time, my body, my choice is that argument. And then at the same time, when someone says, I don't want a vaccine, I have a, a moral and religious conviction against that, we say, we say to them, oh, no, you don't. This is a mandate from on high. I am a Republican. I am a conservative. And I can tell you that I advocate small government and big citizens. The Democrats seem to advocate the reverse big government, and small citizens. Citizens that are dependent on government. The more you are dependent on government, the more they control you folks. The, bi the bigger government is, the less your liberties are, and they are at risk today. This isn't hyperbole, folks. It is a fact of life. I have a, a degree in political science. I have a master's in, in government. And I can tell you it doesn't take a master's to know that history tells again and again the march of tyranny starts when people are silent, when they don't step up, it is not up to your congressman, it's up to you, and you, and every one of us, and you in the, crowd, in, the, in the airspace, listening to this. Listen to it again and again. Our responsibility is to one another to make this a better America, a better future, and all of us can do this with God's help. We can do this, faith, hope, and love for one another and for the future. We may have to make difficult decisions. With God's help, we'll make them. I love America. My name's Dan Matthews. I hope you'll vote for me. Read my voter's guide, please. What I said in the voter's guide, I mean. I said to Mr. Larson and his party, respectfully, please keep your hands off our children. We don't need them messaged with the messages that are coming across today. We need them loved with love and affection. And, and it starts with the family, families that come together, men and women together. Yes, there are only men and women that make up families, and there are only men and women. Well, I want to take a moment to thank, thank uh, Congressman Larson for being here tonight. Uh, Dan, we appreciate your being here. We appreciate the passion from our candidates. We want to thank all of our candidates for being here. 
I uh, want to thank Joe and Ken for moderating the, the uh, forum tonight. Uh, we appreciate their doing it. We appreciate the listeners on KGMI. I do have to put a plug in. That broadcast is being paid for by Asset Advisors. Uh, but that's just a little plug. Anyway, we hope that uh, you've gained some helpful information tonight that uh, when you get your ballot in the mail in about a week, that you can make an informed vote that is going to help you better make the decisions that you need to make in this all-important process. And once again, we thank the audience for being here, and we hope everybody has a good evening. And Joe, I know you got to be on the radio earlier tomorrow, so we got out of here five minutes early. <laughs> thank you a lot.